Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. I, I just came back from a trip to Los Angeles, sunny L.A., where it was cold and rainy the whole time, <laughs> just like you've seen in the postcards. <laughs> there are a few trips I've taken where, like, I've been to San Francisco twice and I went in, like, August both times. Mm. And that's, like, sort of like their foggy winter. It's, like, yeah. 50 every day and a little I liked it but it was like not the time to visit right and the one time I visited Puerto Rico was during a mudslide so I've also had that kind oh of man bad luck with trips yeah yeah uh we, we still had a really good time uh saw some friends of the show hello you know who you are uh which was fun and uh generally speaking uh as as a first time as an adult going to the west coast I enjoyed it and I will probably return yeah. That's my review of L.A. <laughs> How many New Jersey's out of five would you give Los Angeles? That's interesting. It is. It is <laughs> the weird thing about L.A. is like there's downtown L.A., right, which is yeah. the city. I'm sure the people who actually live there are like losing their minds right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's like the, there's like downtown L.A., which is like the city, right? Skyscrapers, the whole thing, right? What you would expect from seeing a city. I didn't go there a single time the whole time I was there. I really spent my time in in the like surrounding area, which is the New Jersey of L.A., I feel. <laughs> the thing is, and I don't know if you've experienced this, you know, because we're both from if you don't already know or have assumed <laughs> we're both from New Jersey. And my first city as a child, my first introduction of the concept of a city was New York City. Mm -hmm. So for me, something I had to get really used to when visiting any other city was not expecting New York. And, and yes. it's sort of like, cause you know, New York is this island of metropolis, you know, the, every borough has its own identity, but like it is a segmented city. Once you're in it, you know, you're in it. Most other cities in the U S at least kind of fade into the suburbs. Like yeah, Chicago does it's that. Where it's like, yeah. Eventually, you're kind of in an area that no one really knows if it's Chicago and then it's farmlands, you know, so it's like, yeah. it's more of a gradual uh, introduction to what what you would assume is the city. Yeah. And I think I think the thing about New York that's so funny is, you know, because it ha it still has those kind of outlying areas like Brooklyn, where I live and Queens. But you have to literally take a bridge to get from what you consider to be New York City to those extra places. So there's. I, I think like a, a mind map that happens, you know, in your subconscious is like this is a very different place. Whereas in a place like L.A. or Chicago or like Philadelphia, for example, when you're going into those outlying areas that are like technically Philadelphia or technically L.A. but aren't, it's literally just like the same road that you were already on in downtown L.A. that's taking you to that place. Yeah. And there's really no separation, I feel. Like if you, if you can see the whole trip without like crossing a body of water, is it really a trip, you know? <laughs> but what you're saying is L.A. is the New Jersey of West Coast. Yes. Yes. Amazing. Anyway, um, <laughs> quick, quick segue and shout out uh, <laughs> for patrons this month. You're going to get that episode uh, with Chris Plant where we sort of prep for our upcoming Dreamcast episode. So this summer, the summer of Dreamcast, we will be doing our season six premiere which I can't believe. And uh, that's going to be all about the Sega, I almost said the Nintendo Dreamcast. <laughs> Yo. The Sega Dreamcast. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> a lot of duality in my head right now between East Coast, West Coast, Sega, and, and, and Mario, and Sonic, and all this stuff. Anyway, we had plans to record with Chris Plant to do sort of like a prep episode for the Dreamcast, because as we've said many times, Brendan and myself don't really have a lot of history with that console. Like for the Game Boy Advance and for the DS, we were both entering with a very concrete past with the system 
system yeah. to compare our like recent history with. Whereas the Dreamcast, like outside of a handful of games, I'm kind of going in blind. Chris had taunted us with how he had prepared like 10 steps in a sort of lecture about like things you have to either do or know before you play the Dreamcast. And this is in no way like pressure to sign up for the Patreon. But if you are a patron, I think it's even more required listening than I had anticipated. Yeah. <laughs> like Chris was not kidding with his with his taunting. Like I, I really think whether it's from Chris or elsewhere, I think to enter the Dreamcast library, you do need more historical context than other systems. Totally. Yeah, I was I was really 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 shocked by that episode honestly yeah. there, there are some i mean I, for yeah, multiple again, reasons I, yeah i don't want to spoil it but like there's yeah. some stuff that happens even in the recording process of that episode where like there's I, a jump scare yeah, yeah I, I like walked out of the room uh <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot um but honestly i have never been so energized to jump into me too one of these season premiere prep processes um i mean this is only our third time doing it so don't really have a whole lot to compare it against but still the idea of going into a system that I know now a little bit about and just like getting ready to experience that I think is cool. But also I think simultaneously one of the interesting things we touch on in the beginning of that episode also is like the Dreamcast is weirdly becoming zeitgeisty in the same way for some reason the Game Boy Advance became zeitgeisty like right when we started doing that episode. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that, I don't think it happened with the DS as much. I mean, obviously the 3DS shut down while we were doing that one, but <laughs> but I think the Dreamcast is weirdly re-entering the zeitgeist in a way because people are looking back, I think specifically at that like art style and that genre of music that existed like really yeah, holistically in the early in, 2000s yeah like yeah. late 90s early 2000s like that era and I, i'm seeing it like all over tiktok i'm seeing it on twitter and on tumblr and like just kind of everywhere i see this kind of revitalization of like i'll, I'll call it like ssx core almost um or, <laughs> or like jet set radio. Or, yeah jet set radio yeah. core yeah which is i, I think really a, a fun time to be jumping into that library also while i'm ingesting all of this art from all of these different places as everyone is kind of energized about it i don't know it just feels like cosmic correct that we're doing the dreamcast yeah and it's also like chris brought up this point on the episode is like jet set radio has kind of become stand-in for dreamcast where it's like yeah everyone kind of says they like or even love the dreamcast and sort of the spirit it embodies but like most of those games are not talked about on that level you know yeah like it is kind of ironic that it's like simultaneously in the zeitgeist but little is known about its overall library mm -hmm. like no one's like yeah i'm, I'm a big seaman fan right you know or yeah. like i mean there are there are obviously classics on it but you know but no, no nobody's like uh taunting executives in their mentions on twitter to bring back sega pro bass fishing the same way <laughs> people are still tweeting at reggie to bring back mother three even though he doesn't work at nintendo anymore right it's also giving me as we as we kind of continue the show and plan on doing systems for season premieres not that that's like set in stone always but it just seems to be a great way to open a season yeah and i feel like as we think about what systems will make good candidates for those episodes to me at least i think when uh, we talked about this with the game boy advance where it's, if i said this reminds me of a game boy advance game you have a palette and sort of energy in your head you can kind of envision what the game would be there was even that uh recently someone made mass effect in the style of game boy advance and dreamcast 2 has like i think the systems that sort of are are synonymous with with a style in and of itself right mm -hmm. like super nintendo game boy advance dreamcast not to not to dismiss more modern systems but i don't think the ps4 or the xbox 360 have as consistent of a visual style that i could say totally give me a game that looks like a ps4 game and you would really know what that means yeah 
Right. So I, I think the Dreamcast was was the right choice is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm really I, excited for that. As of this recording, I literally got my Dreamcast this morning, which is really exciting. Um, we we you and I right after recording that episode, we held off on playing any Dreamcast stuff until we were done recording that episode. And we we ordered some Dreamcasts, which I'll, I'll shout out. The store's called Retro Reflow somewhere in the US. I forget where it is, but uh, you could just go to their website and they, they sell like essentially refurbished and modded Dreamcast. So you and I got some Dreamcasts that have HDMI out specifically and like refurbished VMU uh, memory cards, which is cool. And a couple other like things just to kind of make sure that it continues working like a better power supply. And also I think a silent fan inside also, Mm. um, which is nice. So generally speaking, just taking a Dreamcast, which has a lot of points of failure. I think like most famously the disc uh, tray like doesn't close all the way uh, eventually <laughs> like if you open and close it enough eventually it just stops working and just stays open you need to like duct tape it shut yeah. um, so essentially the store just takes the Dreamcast and like fixes all of those points of failure and also gives you HDMI out which I'm really excited about which means of course that we could maybe like stream stuff which I'm excited to maybe do also yeah I feel like one of us has to stream C-Man at some point <laughs> we can't just play that alone and talk about it that needs, that's a nightmare that needs to that be needs shared. to be shared yeah yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm really excited yeah I, I don't have any games yet. Um, I just have the Dreamcast and it's just sitting on my table literally right now because I got it and opened it right before we hopped on this call. But so excited. So excited. Yeah. To plug that thing in. So all that to say today's episode, what we have planned is like also kind of weirdly Dreamcast prep. One thing that I, I walked away from after we talked about the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog was like playing more Sonic games. I, I think, uh, you know, we just recently did our Super Mario All-Stars bonus and like it's just kind of been a series that I I sort of wrote off like I had played one on my phone back in the day um i had played two <laughs> my, my my formative time with the genesis was actually in college i had the xbox 360 like best of the genesis disc yeah it was actually awesome it was a collection that's where i played comic zone for the first time streets of rage one two and three two is the best one so i i had that and i played the sonic games on that on that collection as well and always liked them but never really got it and always you know the the marketing of of mario versus sonic was so etched into my brain without even wanting it to be that i was always like eh, mario's better that's always been sort of my my thought and eh, mario's better but after after sonic died and and being filled with guilt i was like i need to i need to check out his legacy so the one that i had always had in my backlog was sonic mania which you had already played but revisited for this episode and i had played for the first time and i love it and I'll talk more about it in in seconds. Um, and I also played a bit of Sonic Two on the Switch's Genesis collection, which is which is honestly pretty great. Yeah. I honestly forgot that existed until I was playing Sonic Mania yesterday and I was like, I kind of want to check out. It was funny. You and I did this independently and then realized we had both done it after the fact. But I was like, I kind of want to go back and play some of the original Sonic games just to compare them against Mania and see how I feel about them by comparison and uh, forgot that that Genesis collection existed. And then also they do have a Sega Genesis collection that you can buy on the eShop, which I bought years ago to play Comic Zone on. Um, yeah funnily enough and comic zone is in the online one yes, as well it's also there yeah hilarious um, yeah but first of all that sega genesis collection is like the coolest way you can do a sega genesis collection or really like any game console collection on another console i don't know if you've checked it out but the way it works essentially recreating like a 90s kids bedroom and it has this big shelf filled with all the sega genesis games on it and you like literally oh, take fun. it off the shelf take it out of the box and put it in a console that's under a tv and all the settings that you can change are like the different borders that you can have on the sides of the windows but also like how much of a tv effect there is if you actually want to feel 
feel like you're playing it on a TV. And then also you can zoom out of the like full screen version of it and look at the TV in this bedroom if you want to instead and like actually feel like you're looking at a television. That's like that game for the DS was it the retro. Yes. Game? Yes. Re- retro game arcade, I think. Or something yeah, like that. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. Retro game challenge. That's what it was. Retro game challenge. Yeah, yeah that game ruled. Um, but yeah, it's very much like that, which honestly is very cool. Uh, doesn't work as well in handheld mode, obviously. But if you're playing it on the TV, it looks sick uh, yeah. to see a TV in the TV is really fun. Um, but <laughs> I anyway, that up. it's a it's a cool collection. But that's that's I, I wanted to go back and play one also. And that, that was how I did that, because for some reason, one isn't available in the like Nintendo online Sega Genesis collection. Only two. Yeah. Two is the only one they have on there. It's, it's a little weird. I mean, yeah, the only time I played one was again on my phone on my flip phone in, in 2006 <laughs> it was a dream i had but uh yeah so i guess my like my big thought my big revelation while mm-hmm. playing sonic mania and this might be like totally not a hot take but i couldn't help but kind of realize playing this especially right after playing all the mario stuff is i'm like if there wasn't a like corporate agenda to market these mascots against each other I would not compare these two games at all. I just I feel like other than the fact that Mario can build up momentum and that they're both platformers and both the mascots of a big video game company, I actually think Sega did themselves a disservice pushing Sonic against Mario. Interesting. Because it really is, in my opinion, two dramatically different experiences. And I also, I mean, to be clear, I think Mario, comparing any platformer to Mario is kind of a doomed mission. Like (laughs) there are maybe the only game that exists that I can maybe say is like built as a platform former in any way close to Mario's design is Celeste. And that game mm-hmm. is also a miracle masterpiece. So it's like, yeah. unless you're making the best platformer ever, <laughs> comparing yourself to Mario is is silly. And, you know, I, I, I'm glad Sega had the hubris to do that. And it clearly worked. A lot of people, you know, I think the console war stuff is a little silly. But I also do think that because they're totally different experiences, one could be completely justified saying, I don't know, I prefer Sonic because it's X, Y, and Z to Mario's completely different experience. Yeah. And playing Sonic Mania has just been so much fun. I love it. I I, I think playing both of the games, I think Sonic Mania is the one to play. That might be a hot take. I just think it's it's the best version of 2D Sonic I've played personally. I, I'll say, I've, I've mentioned this in the past, but just to refresh, I, I grew up playing the Sega Genesis. That was like the console I had in my house. I played a yeah. lot of Sonic 1 specifically because that was like the game that I had for a long time. It was like yeah. the game <laughs> that I owned besides, uh, I think, some Tiger Woods game at some point, which I didn't sure. play because that was just for my dad. Um, but <laughs> I... Uh, I liked Sonic a lot as a kid. I played two, I played three, I played Sonic and Knuckles eventually like way down the line because my main way of getting games was like going to Funko Land and checking out the bargain bin and just like picking up stuff because at that point like the PS1 was out and the N64 was out and people had moved on, you know. I imagine even the Dreamcast was out and I was still buying Sega Genesis stuff. Um, Oh, yeah. But, you know, it was all deeply on sale. So I I eventually did make my way through all the Sonic games over time and really loved all of them at the time. But as I've mentioned many times on the show, especially during the Game Boy Advance episode with all the Sonic Advance games, like going back and playing them, I haven't really had as much of an affinity for Sonic as I did in the past. I found them more frustrating than anything because I, I, I found so frequently that the game is trying to push on you this power fantasy of like, check out this rad little blue guy who can run so fucking fast and then as soon as you try and build up momentum you run into spikes and die or like run into a (laughs) into a a bottomless pit and die or jump directly into i don't even know like a 
some like hellish freak zone, you know, that, that also kills you. Like I just I just found that any time I was exerting my will into the power fantasy that the game was marketing to me, I would end up like dooming myself over and over again. Um, and the games that I think work the best in the Sonic lineage are the ones that allow you to just run from left to right as fast as you can. And also, you then have to step back and ask yourself, like, is that fun? Is it fun to just run left to right as fast as you can? And one of the things that I found so interesting about Sonic Mania when it came out, just I, I guess to take a step back, Sonic Mania is a game that came out, I think, in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. That was essentially Sega saying, like, we've made a lot of 3D Sonic games that haven't really gone over so well. We're going to take a step back and try and like get back to our roots and make a 2D Sonic game again that is a celebration of Sonic and all the things you love about it. And I think what that game gets so right is by turning it more into a platformer in some ways and making it more about exploration and less about just how quickly can you move from left to right. And for that reason, it ends up being the best one. Like, I, I agree with you, especially going back and replaying at least one and two in preparation for this episode. I kind of want to go play them all again and definitely will before the Dreamcast episode, to be clear. But my, my feeling very much playing Sonic Mania is like, you know, after you get past Green Hill Zone one, which is almost a one to one remake of the original Green Hill Zone one from Sonic one, the game just kind of like goes off in its own direction and becomes its own thing uh, and starts to expand upon ideas that are in all the previous Sonic games. On top of that, they also let you play as Sonic, Sonic and Tails or Knuckles, which is like the dream also uh if you if you don't know this about the sonic games sonic and knuckles the cartridge had a second cartridge slot on top of the cartridge that you could plug sonic one two or three into that would then essentially mod knuckles into those games which was like a miracle at the time obviously that was like unheard yeah. of and so bizarre such a weird thing to do but Ever since then, I, th I think the dream has always been like, I just want to play as Knuckles all the time because Knuckles is such like, <laughs> first of all, you know, in, in like 90s, early 2000s, he was like the coolest guy. Of oh, all. yeah. You know, even Absolutely. more so than Sonic. It was like, OK, we made Sonic and he's so fucking cool. But what if what if there was an even cooler Sonic? And it's like, yeah, what if he was red right. and had spikes on Knuckles his hands? Knuckles resented the spotlight, which made him even more desirable, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, right. That's yeah. that's what makes him him. Right. Yeah. He's side eyeing the camera. He's not looking directly yeah. into it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, Sonic Mania allowing you to have those three play styles, you know, from all of these different Sonic games, but having all these levels of work and be fun to explore with all three of those is really fun. So my experience with Sonic Mania over the past, I guess, day, because it was yesterday we talked about it, was mainly playing through the first two zones as Sonic, as Sonic and Tails and then as Knuckles. And in all three of those experiences, you're going to have wildly different vibes, yeah. which is, I think, really cool. Like they, they really built all of these levels to be so adaptable based on which of those characters you're playing as. Because Tails, if you don't know this, Sonic and Tails, if you're playing as the two of them, Tails can kind of like hover in the air. Um, it's it's a little bit I mean, not to keep this comparison going, but it's a little bit like Mario riding Yoshi, where like you can kind of like hover up a little bit um, every time you jump. And then Knuckles has the ability to like literally glide through the air and then he kind of shoves his knuckles into the wall and is able to climb up the side of a wall um, and using those movement abilities as ways of exploration, I think, takes Sonic into this place that I now realize always wish had been there in some ways. And Sonic Mania just gets that so inherently and is built from the ground up for that. Whereas when you append Knuckles into Sonic 1, it's not that exciting. Like, it's cool that you're playing as Knuckles in Sonic 1, but it doesn't change the way you're making your way throughout the world as much because there's still a very linear point A and point B that you need to make yeah. your way through in that game. I don't know the full details of the development of Sonic Mania, but I did read that um, the game was developed by people who were in the like ROM hacking community for oh, Sonic. Sick. So I think that idea you just said of like, I wish this was there, 
you know, I feel like mm-hmm. that was that seems to be like the guiding sentiment of the game's existence. I think it's like yeah. Sonic at this point is benefiting so much from like the fan community around it, like the people that have like stuck around and, and thought about what makes these games work. Yeah. In the same way that like Skyrim and Bethesda have from that modding community. Yeah. Like totally. I don't know how you feel about it, but that that's I think one of the more interesting things about Sonic and the legacy of Sonic as a as an IP for me is is that question of like why are these games good and why are they so beloved? in some ways because it's yeah it's weirdly harder to put your finger on than you would think and and especially you and i who sit here every fucking week and talk about what we like about video games it is weirdly especially hard to look at sonic the hedgehog and be like why is this a cultural force on the level that it is yeah you know? I, it's it's hard because i think the level design is maximalism you know i think it's like <laughs> yeah. the the experience of it i mean on one hand i think like we said with the murder of sonic the hedgehog and i'm not i don't want to speak on anyone's behalf on why they like this beloved series but the things that stand out to me at least are you know for one the character design and the music and just the vibe of the world that is like objectively great like totally even if you hate sonic as a game like you can't help but get caught up in just the the whimsy of it all Mm -hmm. and the other thing too is that i i i think in some ways that that frustration you shared about like i want to play the power fantasy of the game but they keep punishing me for playing it that is i think the biggest difference between sonic mania and sonic 2 from my you know brief experience playing both of them side by side yeah i will say that first area in sonic 2 and sonic mania i think is a great level because i think it very much is the one one of sonic yeah but there are there are more lessons because there's more going on Mm -hmm. like mario benefits especially the first super mario brothers benefits from very simple design you move and you jump in sonic there's a lot about building momentum when and why and how you want to build momentum and when it benefits you to stop and to look for secrets yeah it weirdly has some mario 2 in it especially now being able (laughs) to play as all the different characters but i think the thing that makes that first level work and that i think makes the chemical plant zone work other than the incredible music is that both of those levels are when they make you stop it's to learn a lesson so when you stop in the first loop it's like okay you actually you can't just run and do the loop you have to like make sure you have enough momentum to do that and then of course you learn how to do the spin dash and you're doing great Mm -hmm. um chemical plant zone is more about like okay here are the potential dangers of moving too fast but it's still fun enough that you're like going through tubes and all that then you get to the water level and it it's like the game suddenly decided fuck you for enjoying this uh (laughs) you are not playing sonic you're playing altered beast and there's water everywhere and like it 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 is truly like the game decided to stop you from having fun Mm -hmm. um and i think what sonic mania does is as sort of a because the the and I get why they did this, because I think if the game, if Sonic 2 was just you running fast, it would lose all excitement. They need to create obstacles that stop you and that make those moments feel like you earned them. But what Sonic Mania does, instead of punishing you, it just changes what the experience is. So anytime the game is either speeding along, going into fun like pinball areas or like weird little animations that make it really exciting or stopping and taking a look at your surroundings. You know, there, there are still, I think a, a, a thing that plagues the series, in my opinion, is a lack of consistent 
visual communication. I, I'm never fully confident until it already happens why I'm getting hurt or what will hurt me or what I can roll into without worry. Mm-hmm. And and that's a big issue in Sonic 2 because there's so many enemies that are like hidden behind something that you would never know were there until after the fact. But in Sonic Mania, I think rather than having those moments, like the moments that stop you give you options rather than punishing you. And that, that's, I think, the biggest difference I see between the games and why I think Sonic Mania is just more fun to play. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's, I think, the the real success of Sonic Mania is understanding yeah. that that is the most fun part of Sonic. At least that's, you know, your take and my take at the moment. Yeah, um, right. You know, I, I, I think there is another angle that you could take with it, which is worth considering, which is a lot of people who have that kind of affinity for Sonic, the Hedgehog, th- those original games specifically. I don't just mean the character because that's a whole separate beast. But like, I feel like just those original games on the Sega Genesis or even the, the Game Boy Advance ones, the vibe was you're a young kid and you're playing Sonic the Hedgehog and you have like infinite time essentially to die over and over and over and over again and play your way through over and over and over again and by doing so you start to learn those levels kind of like the back of your hand and you start to know exactly when to jump and then that's when the power fantasy of like very literally speed running but also speed running like the the esport kind of comes into play where then because you have the whole thing memorized you do get to exert yourself into that power fantasy of like i am going to run as fast as possible i know exactly when to jump i know exactly when to turn the other way i know exactly when to like spin dash and do all of this stuff and then make your way to the end i i think that that's probably an angle here i will say my experience going and playing all of these games in preparation for this episode the main thing that I feel about the 2D Sonic games in particular that really sticks with me that I kind of wish is or maybe even just as another path they could go down if they wanted to is the boss fights are so fun and so yeah. cool in all of these in games. Both games. Yeah, yeah. Like they they really that was something that's especially after Mario where like it took three Mario games to figure out boss fights. Right. Because like it's like, what do we do? Yeah. All the boss fights are fun. They're almost like your your reward for beating the level. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they're not they're not hard, but they are little puzzles that use the mechanics in interesting ways. Right. And to be clear, I think Sonic 2 is a great game. I just think like the the big step up in level design makes Mania a little more uh easy to play yeah basically yeah i i think if i was recommending sonic games to somebody who had never played one before sonic mania is the obvious one to start with yeah absolutely and i think it's i mean i love the genesis aesthetic so it was really fun to play the original sonic 2 and just like and and in the game's credit too like i think the movement of the character feels almost untouched Mm -hmm. they really nailed just how sonic responds to the controller and like in some ways is way more dynamic than Mario was in, in the same time. Like his reaction to like stopping and starting or being on the edge of something like, yeah, it, it, the sense of character is much stronger because there is a character. Mario is just sort of there to do a thing. Yeah, Mario is a blank slate for a long time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Until he, we met Luigi. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just really glad that I gave these games another shot and I really genuinely love mania and we'll keep playing it that's awesome because I, I also there's a lot of fun little modes too like there are secrets to find in a level even in the levels that are basically just from the old games you can find the big 3d rings mm-hmm. that will take you into like an auto runner um sort of uh, a short hike soft ds 3d version <laughs> of sonic yeah and like that that variety is really fun it, it does kind of feel like i know they just released sonic origins recently which 
seems to be more of a one-to-one to all-stars but mania does feel like all-stars in spirit for sonic as well i agree it's yeah. kind of this like mashup of both homage and like what the series can benefit from and the fact that it's made by people that are longtime fans is also kind of special too yeah Similar to uh, Miss Pac-Man, I know, was made by like big fans of the game that were like essentially hackers. Right. Um, so it's interesting when when those people end up joining the official development teams. Yeah. And what can benefit from that? It seems like that's where the success of Sonic continues to lie, at least in the way that games are received it is between Sonic Mania and and the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog. It's like, yeah, give give the fans control over the IP. Yeah, because I think the game that released alongside Sonic Mania, I think, was Sonic Forces, which. Which mm. you and I played and and collectively erased from our minds minutes after. Yeah, that was that was the one where you could make your own, right? That one. I do remember that because I made it looked like a, an extra from Betty Boop. It was this like <laughs> terrifying <laughs> rabbit with like solid black circles for eyes, and his victory pose was a small bow. And all I remember is being in your house. I was an invited guest, and I blew it because I sat down, <laughs> I put on Sonic Forces, and I made this rabbit. And I remember Persia watching from a distance, going, "Oh, Stephen, that's." really scary (laughs) Percy has only given me encouragement and is like such a supportive friend and fan of the show and she was like this you're on the edge of of summoning something with this creation yeah that was a bit much I (laughs) I will say and that was my fault to be clear the development team of Sonic Forces I don't think foresaw what the potential of their character creator was I think if you create a tool set you need to understand the ramifications of the tools that you're giving to players that's true What's what was really scary is that that character was just running at us the whole time like facing the screen <laughs> chasing us in 3D uh, and in our nightmares I, in our nightmares one of the things I'm most excited about <laughs> I think because a, a real a real kind of like um, shadow of war in terms of my gaming knowledge. Weirdly, even though I'm such a big uh, Sega person, is the 3D side of Sonic the Hedgehog because I yeah. feel like at least the zeitgeist nature of conversation around Sonic the Hedgehog, if you're not in the fandom, is like every 3D Sonic has been bad. And I think over time, people are starting to realize that that wasn't the case really at all. Is that like some of them are actually good, right? Like Sonic Adventure 2 Battle obviously stands out for a lot of people as like one of the better ones. But I'm kind of curious to play. Sonic Adventure 1, for example. And I really do now want to check out Sonic Frontiers, which is that most recent one that's like an open world thing. Yeah, me too. Which seems that, that to be actually really divisive specifically, which is like exactly in the wheelhouse of what you and I love to check out. Yeah, absolutely. It was divisive, but it definitely was better received than most recent 3D stuff. Yeah. And I think it's like at the very least a new direction that makes a little bit more sense. My thing, and this is definitely a, a common sentiment I saw online, was like an open world game doesn't need to be a Shadow of the Colossus open field. Like I think an open world Sonic game where they have sort of like a city environment like the early mm-hmm. 3D games would be so much fun. Yeah. You know, like I, I played Sonic Adventure 2 on GameCube somewhat. Re- actually, I played it on my Xbox somewhat recently and like it's a little clunky but it's still really charming and it's the kind of game that like even if it doesn't fully work on its own merit you can tell it gave a lot of people ideas mm-hmm. for like what is possible <laughs> in this world you know for better or for worse mm-hmm. um i am excited to play the first one I, I remember being in a game store like when i was a kid and seeing sonic run away from a killer whale in the first sonic adventure <laughs> 
yeah. and being so excited. I'm like, this never have I seen a moment of a game that felt more like the future. And boy, was I wrong because <laughs> uh, we all know how the Dreamcast turned out. But it was there was something really intriguing and exciting about that early era of 3D. Mm, yeah. And we're, we're now full circle where it's like we've we've come so far from 3D being a novelty, but there's still so much ambition on display in that generation of games that I think make them worth revisiting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so with you. And now we have the Dreamcast to prove it. So that's all I have to say about Sonic for now. I I am also like you. I'm I'm curious to revisit the 3D ones, mostly the the first two adventure games. I don't know if I have Sonic and the Black Knight in me quite yet. <laughs> I might I might wait on that or or the one where he's a werewolf. Oh my god! Yeah, Sonic Unleashed. Maybe. Yeah, that sounds correct. That sounds like one where, where he's, you become a he's werewolf. He's a werehog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Why don't we take a break? We're gonna have to play Shadow the Hedgehog also. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. There there are some games like the CDI Zeldas and Shadow the Hedgehog are like camp musts, in my opinion. Doesn't that feel you like know? a great bonus episode or like a patron bonus? Uh, Shadow, For the Dreamcast. Yeah. Shadow the Hedgehog <laughs> and uh, Dirge of Cerberus. Oh, my God. Feature. Yeah, we that that has to happen. <laughs> absolutely. What if we each were playing this one of those games at the same time and just talking while playing? <laughs> I wonder if they are accidentally beat for beat the same game. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Watching Advent Children has made me such a big fan of Vincent. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with myself. I really feel like you mentioned this when we watched it, but if I had seen that in high school, I would have been a different person. Yeah. Probably for the better. <laughs> you think so? I think so. Yeah. Life Vincentless is not worth living. I think. <laughs> we gotta take a break. That was so good. <laughs> See you soon. Bye-bye. I have to issue a quick correction from the last segment. Uh I mentioned that with the Sonic and Knuckles cartridge, you could plug in Sonic 1, 2, or 3 and play as Knuckles and all of them. You couldn't do that with Sonic 1. They just unlocked a minigame if you plugged Sonic 1 in. Lame. Uh, but in Sonic 2 and 3, you could play as Knuckles. That's cool. Anyway. Sonic 1 is weirdly the, the mysterious entry. Yes. Can't get anywhere. Knuckles won't show up. What's, what, what's, going, on? <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> um, I have a different game to talk about. You and I have yeah, been talking right. a little bit about visual novels recently. Um, yeah. And... Wouldn't you know it, but a new visual novel came out this past week. And I was like, I, I got to check it out. I feel obligated to check it out uh, based on our recent conversations, but also just like weirdly curious about this. Um, I will say quick disclaimer. I'm an employee of the Walt Disney Company. Everything I say and do does not reflect the views of my employer. But Walt Disney Presents Tron Identity uh, is a new video game that came out recently uh, on the Nintendo Switch. I don't know if it's out anywhere else. I, I to be perfectly honest, not going to look it up. If you back the Patreon and get access to the air table, you can see it there. But uh, I'm playing it on the Switch. And by I'm playing it, I mean, I have played it twice at this point. I finished the game two times because it's really short. I, I think that's worth knowing ahead of time. It's about two hours long. It's like a two hour long visual novel that takes place in the world of Tron and seems like a game that is meant to be replayed, which I think is an interesting idea for a visual novel in general. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think you and I have experienced a couple of visual novels where that is the case. 13 Sentinels, Aegis Rim feels like, you know, a, a real standout there where it's like you play that game a second time and it's like you suddenly understand the universe in a way. Yeah. Or um, I was a teenage exocolonist exo- right. has gameplay features if you replay it without yeah. saying too much. Yeah. Tron identity, specifically looking at the world of Tron and being like, we want you to have as much choice over this world as possible. 
and making the game really short to incentivize that, I think is a really smart move. So taking a step back, what is Tron Identity? What's going on here? Tron is a movie from the 80s and then a movie from the uh, like early to mid 2010s and then silence. Tron, <laughs> Tron's been kind of like a weird thing, whereas the first movie, I Kingdom think Hearts is... Kingdom Hearts 2 World Kingdom Hearts as well. Kingdom Hearts 2 World is a great point. It's a great point. It's also a ride yeah. at Epcot in Walt Disney World. Yeah, the, the first Tron movie in the 80s, you know, visual spectacle, visual feast in the 80s, kind of like remarkable that it was made at all and looks the way it does. It still looks really cool. Like, I would recommend watching Tron just to like even see what it looks like. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like the height of 80s arcade culture, computers are starting to become a little bit more of a thing that everybody's interested in. The idea of the personal computer is like right around the corner. Tron is like very much in the zeitgeist at the moment where it needs to be in the zeitgeist. And the idea of like a movie about jumping into a computer and guess what? All of the programs that are on your computer are people is like a wild idea. It's amazing to think that it was like a mainstream hit. One of my favorite things about like the 80s aesthetic is that it, it really was the decade that felt strongly it was the future. And that's what makes, I think, the aesthetic so fun. It's yeah. like, this is the peak of technology, baby. <laughs> it's like, you know, clearly not. It makes it so funny now. But I, I love yeah. I love that confidence. Yeah. Tron Legacy is a movie that came out, I think, like around when you and I were in college, like in that vicinity. Yeah, um, it was. I mean, Daft Punk. I feel like that era to me is like Dead Mouse, Daft Punk, like all, all that kind of music was really popular. Yeah. And I think I think the interesting thing about Tron Legacy, at least at the time that it came out, was that it seemed like they were trying to reboot Tron. It seemed like they really wanted Tron to like become a part of the cultural mainstream again. And the way they went about that was by really investing in the visual and, and Sonic side of it, uh, <laughs> the hedgehog uh, <laughs> side of it. Um, so you just had like the most incredible visual feast alongside Daft Punk doing the soundtrack, both like the diegetic score that plays like as characters are walking into clubs and stuff, but also even just the more cinematic like OST stuff is also Daft Punk, which to this day is still culturally relevant. Like you hop on TikTok or really anywhere and you're still hearing the Daft Punk soundtrack from John Legacy. Like, yeah, Daft Punk are also just incredible. Yeah, so they're, they have stood the test of time. Very much so. So... The announcement of a Tron video game feels like a, such an obvious thing in some ways, right? Like, you know, the, the whole premise of the first movie is you're jumping into an arcade machine. So, like, it feels obvious that you would make a video game out of it. And there have been some here and there in the past, like the light cycle game in Tron, the movie is a thing that you can play like that exists and has existed for a while. But Kingdom I think Hearts 2. the Kingdom Hearts 2 exists, <laughs> <Sorry>. obviously, <laughs> but I feel like one of the interesting things about Tron identity and what I've seen in terms of like the conversation online about it is that people are generally just like disappointed by what it is by being a visual novel. Mm. And I get, I get that from a certain perspective. I mean, again, there is the power fantasy of Tron, right? Is like you jump in to this incredible simulated world where you as quote unquote, the user are like, you know, somebody who can exert almost like Neo can exert this like power over the world and like reprogram the world at your will. The idea of light cycles, the idea of like the having these discs on your back that like contain all of your memories and your identity and using it as like a weapon against people, you know, the like ability to throw it at people and derez them, which is essentially killing them in that world, things like that. Like it feels like it could make for an action game, right? Yeah. But instead they decided to go this route and make a visual novel. And I think people are upset about that, which I, at one, when they announced this game, I was like, that's a weird choice to make a visual novel. But yeah. again, you and I are very <laughs> interested in weird choices. So I was like, I'm, I'm in, I'm already in on that. That sounds interesting. 
interesting to me. But on the other side, the developer of this game is Mike Bithell, who is known for making Thomas Was Alone, is like one of the big hits. Oh, okay, um, yeah. But also, I think more recently, uh, John Wick Hex, which was, again, taking an intellectual property like John Wick, you know, who is known for walking into a room and killing like 50 dudes with his pinky finger and turning it into a turn-based strategy game, almost to the tune of like a Hitman Go or like a, like a, a Tomb Raider Go, like any of those games. Yeah. Right. Um, again, when that was announced, people were like, why, why would this be the video game? Really mixed opinion on what people felt about it. Uh, there were some people who played it and were like, this is actually really smart. This is a really interesting way to take this IP and turn it into a video game. And other people were like, I want this to be an action game. Yeah. It reminds me of the Telltale Borderlands approach as well, where it's like mm. there is a clear expectation for what a game in this universe should be. Yeah. And then there there are games. That, I mean, in that case, I think I think what might stand out with Tron, like you said, is that there's been no entries in the Tron IP since 2010. So, you know, I think there's a lot of expectation maybe of like what should happen and what should, should it be another movie? Yes. Should it be an action game? You know, I, I imagine whatever they announced would be met with some kind of mixed reception. Yeah, probably. Unless it was just, yeah, again, unless it was just another movie or like a fully like action adventure ass game. Right. Um, but right. I, I think when you look at John Wick Hex in particular, if that were a full action game, for example, and you are John Wick and you walk into a room and you shoot three guys in the head like it's super hot and then you die, then you're not living the John Wick power fantasy in some right. ways. Right. Right. And I think having that IP and saying, I'm going to turn this into a turn-based strategy game where you walk into a room and you need to take stock of everyone that's in that room, where they are, what they're pointing at, what weapon they have in their hand at that moment, what things exist in the room that you can utilize as weapons, and then making the decision, a play-by-play -play decision of being like, okay, pick up this bottle, throw it over here, turn around this way, shoot this guy in the head, reload, shoot this guy that's behind me, take this person's shotgun, shoot them with it, then reload. And you know, like, that kind of experience yeah. weirdly does feel more John Wick than like walking into a room and dying in four seconds because there are 51 enemies. This is almost the inverse of what we were talking about last week with all the different movie adaptations of games where it's like if you are making a game adaptation of a movie, mm. the logical step might not be the right one. Where it's like, yeah. again, if you if you make a uh, a game about John Wick, like what what genre of game actually best serves that experience? Yeah. So that's a really, really brilliant observation so yeah. that takes you to tron identity which last week in preparation for this game coming out because i knew i wanted to pick it up for my trip i watched tron legacy again because i hadn't seen it since it came out and i saw it once in theaters and that was kind of it and i was like let me let me check this movie out again and just kind of see how i feel about it you know years since and my main takeaway from it is like yeah, obviously all the action stuff is cool, but there's this really interesting like lore level to Tron that kind of goes unexplored. Like they kind of dip into it here and there. It's a little bit part of the narrative, but I would say that the narrative is kind of the weakest part of Tron Legacy. And it definitely is one of the weaker parts of the original Tron as well, where it's like they introduce all these really interesting elements, but it really just kind of exists to be like a visual feast in some right, ways. Right. And I yeah. think it's really smart, again, that Bithel and the team took this IP and said, what is actually the most interesting? way we can explore this world and the most interesting way is to dive even further into the lore and the and the almost like politics of what it's like to live in these simulations removed entirely from a chosen one user jeff bridges type showing up like <laughs> yeah. what what is this like when it's just kind of governing itself so the the game i, I won't say too much about like 
what actually happens in the game, because, again, it's a two hour visual novel, so I don't really want to spoil anything that happens in there. But just to give you a little bit of the setup for it in Tron Legacy specifically, the the setup of that story is that Jeff Bridges is trying to allow the machines and, and the programs in the like Tron server to exist on their own, to have like their own environment to just kind of like create and make a utopia out of in the hope that eventually users like Jeff Bridges and other people could like visit it almost like a destination, which, uh, you know, has a little bit of like a weird capitalistic undertone that goes completely unexplored, to be clear. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of the idea. And the way that he goes about doing that is by creating a programmatic clone of himself called Clue, who he's like, okay clue your your main priority as a program in this world is to using my memories and my data and my information create a utopia out of this server and he leaves for a while eventually he goes back into the server gets kidnapped essentially by clue who has become evil in in the you know process of trying to make a utopia as all people do in the process of trying to make a utopia it seems like right. <laughs> in every piece of media ever and that's that's where tron legacy is that's like would if you, you love if that ever worked if that is, it was like, <laughs> and it was great yeah. Yeah, it's like, i did it anyway my neighbors have been really loud lately yeah is this a utopia oh the decibel yeah. level is too high yeah my apple watch keeps screaming at me um <laughs> that's like my friend and i uh my friend bobby and i had a joke about them making a jurassic park where the park is perfect but they just don't <laughs> bring back carnivores and then it's just like a full house sitcom that happens to have dinosaurs in it. i love that <laughs> yeah anyway I, that the dumbest derailing i could have done please continue <laughs> no, that's good um yeah. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So that that's the setup of, of Tron Legacy is like Jeff Bridges son shows up in the server and is like, oh, my God, you kidnapped my dad, blah, blah, blah. Right. E- evil, evil clone version of my dad, etc. All of that said, Tron identity picks up in a kind of similar space where apparently the as a spinoff to that movie in particular and the franchise Jeff Bridges character Flynn set up that server with Clue as the clone to make a perfect utopia and then set up a second server kind of like an A-B test where he didn't do that, where he didn't make a a clone of himself to create a perfect utopia and just kind of like let it run rampant on its own Mm. in the hopes that he would figure out which of these two kind of like worked out. So you play as a detective in the world of Tron in that second server where there really is like no user interference or interaction whatsoever. So essentially God came down created your world and then was like peace i'll see you one day to check up on this and see if it worked out so essentially you just live as i would almost say like like virus like antivirus software in some ways (laughs) and you are tasked with going into like the main hub of the server uh and solving a crime that has happened there there's been a big explosion in a vault there are a bunch of suspects but generally speaking you're just kind of hanging out in this tower making decisions and interviewing and interrogating people uh, throughout the course of this game to try and solve this crime. I think the thing, there are two things about it that really work for me. Number one is I think it's an interesting way to explore Tron. It's an interesting way to adapt this IP by saying like, there are actually a lot of really interesting ideas that are touched on in these movies that are never fully explored. And we're going to really go into them. For example, uh, there's this idea that pops up briefly in Tron Legacy where uh, the program starts creating more programs uh, that are called ISOs. And these ISOs are essentially like a self-governing new race of beings that exist in this server clue won't have that and then i think like uh, essentially wipes them all out uh but in this world because clue doesn't exist they're allowed to like flourish and exist so what's going on with that 
On top of that, what happens when uh, the program starts replicating itself, for example, and doesn't feel the need to model itself after human ingenuity and human design and starts creating beings that don't look like humans? Like what happens when a computer gets to create what it thinks is the optimal life form that exists in in a technological space like that? All of these things get explored throughout the course of just this investigation. And it's not like your character doesn't know that, but it's just like by having conversations and exploring and interacting with objects, you as the player start to pick up on that stuff, which I think is really smart. On top of that, I think just setting it in a tower, just a tower where you can just get in an elevator and visit the various floors and just interview the different people that live on those different floors and exist on those different floors is also very smart to keep it very contained. Yeah. Because again, making it a two hour story means you don't really want to be like traveling across the world over and over again. This isn't like, you know, for, for the most part, not really a world ending plot. So you're just kind of like bopping around this tower and seeing who did it. And that's kind of fun by itself. I think the most interesting thing, though, is that your character specifically is set up to be um, almost like an impartial observer. Like you're just supposed to figure out the truth, really, more than anything else. And you're not supposed to intervene at all. But throughout the course of the game, because it's a visual novel, you do have to make choices. And your character is constantly like freaking out about the fact that they need to make choices uh, because they keep being put in these positions where it's like you really can't not make a choice. You need to really actually have you need to make a decision in order for, you know, people to not die or for the simulation to continue on in various uh, instances. What that means really, and this is, I think, the best part and, and the best thing you can say about any visual novel. And and it's interesting that you brought up Telltale already because it reminds me a lot of Telltale is that literally, literally, I mean, I really do mean this every single decision you make has a huge amount of weight and changes the game pretty significantly what literally the first thing that happens is you're like walking into the tower and a bunch of there's like a light cycle chase that's happening like some cops are like chasing a criminal and you can either jump out of the way or not in the beginning of that and that decision will ripple out through the rest of the game like literally one of the last things that happens in the game will reference that again it'll be like you dodged the light cycle or you didn't move when the light cycle was coming after you um and that will like change the dialogue trees that you have options to decide between um or that will change the way that characters talk to you because maybe they saw you do that out of the window like if you didn't move for example at the beginning when the light cycle was coming after you people will be intimidated by you later when you meet them if they saw that happen things like that just continue to pile onto themselves which is again why i played this game twice because you know i i saw those references happening throughout the course of the game my first time and was like man if they're still thinking about what i did with that light cycle an hour ago i can't even imagine what's happening when this person has a gun to this person's head and right. i and i intervene what happens if i don't do that you know or what happens if you know, there's a point early on in the game where uh there's a character you meet who you can bring on as a partner in the investigation or not um and they're kind of like a prickly dude and you could be like I- I actually fuck you I don't want to bring you with me. Um, I chose to bring him with me on my first playthrough. And it turns out everyone in the tower hates that guy and they don't want to talk to me if he's with me. <laughs> so the investigation becomes so significantly fun. more difficult because he's there. So the second time through, I didn't bring him with me. And guess what? Everyone opened up and was like a lot more jovial, you know, despite the circumstances. So all that having been said, I think it's a really interesting way to look at the universe of Tron. And I think on top of that, it's just a successful visual novel. Um, yeah. And, and just being a shorter experience, I think is like smart for many reasons. Um, I, it seems like they're setting up for sequels. It was the vibe that I'm getting. Like they want to continue making more of these. Yeah. Yeah. But on top of that, 
you know, I, I think it's much smarter in some ways to say, like, we're going to take an indie developer who's known for taking intellectual property and doing cool things with them. And, you know, this person has a very small team taking this IP and turning it into something like interesting and cool and notable, even if it isn't like a big triple A budget thing that we need to put on billboards and run ads alongside IGN.com and stuff, you know, right, which I think is a, is a smart way of doing it. And, you know, they got all the press they needed when it was in a Nintendo Direct. The people who are interested are going to pick it up like me. Yeah, it sounds like it really benefits too from we talk a lot about games where like the irony of having the world feel bigger and more interesting if you are a smaller part of it. Yeah. So like by not being the chosen one, you get a a at least a different look at the world, mm-hmm. which is inherently interesting. And also, I think we, we you know, we, we are past the era of every big game going like every decision you make is going to change. You know, it's like, right. like maybe two big decisions. Like as much as I love Mass Effect and Mass Effect, I think for a big AAA game comes about as close as you can to having that pitch be true. Right. There are still plenty of decisions where the game's like, eh. Like, you know, yeah. there are like some big decisions that you might like think about for an hour before committing. And the game's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember when we were doing the trilogy for our <laughs> bonus episode about it yeah. and, and looking, there was like a spoiler free guide for Mass Effect 1. And one of the first things that it said it was like an old game facts guide. And one of the first things it said was like, there are three decisions that matter. And I will tell you what will happen at those points when you hit that in the guide. Everything else. Don't worry about. <laughs> OK, cool. <laughs> Now, given I think some choices can just be for flavor and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I think by by making the game shorter from what little knowledge I have of sort of narrative game design, even a two hour game where there are branching paths is a wild amount of work. Yes. So even on a project of this scale, it is still ambitious. But I think you can actually pull off the every decision matters if you have that be the focus of the design. And kind of know, okay, this is not going to be a Mass Effect trilogy or a big triple A game. It's going to be a very digestible game that is meant to be seen multiple times. Right. Um, kind of knowing that from the beginning of the of the development process, I think aids the final product. It sounds like they they saw it through. Yeah. So that's really cool to, to hear. Yeah, I think so. I I haven't really seen a lot of reviews of this game yet. I think it's really yeah. kind of flying under the radar, which is one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up. Um, sure. You know yeah. that Walt Disney Company, they sure need help. Uh, <laughs> but um, I I do think in terms of us living in a world now where it's no longer 2003 and Over the Hedge isn't getting a Game Boy Advance game <laughs> just because it exists. You know, like. It's fun. It's fun to see somebody take an intellectual property like Tron and like actually do something really cool and interesting with it in almost the way it kind of weirdly links back to Sonic Mania, where it's like, here are the fans of this game yeah, saying what they think is an interesting way to take Sonic and turn it into a modern experience, even in the shell of what it used to be taking Tron and, and watching those movies and sitting back and saying like, what's actually interesting about this world and what is left unexplored and turning it into an experience where it is a visual novel, where you just get to like see the lore kind of play out in front of you. Really cool angle. I think. I know this is like what an AI would predict, I would say next, but I do really, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I couldn't help but start thinking how cool it would be to have this in the Elder Scrolls. Like, cause I think that, oh yeah, what I kept thinking about when you're like Tron has, has these interesting ideas that go unexplored. There is like a wild lore to the Elder Scrolls that, that really, other than in Morrowind kind of goes under the radar mm-hmm. like you get you get bits and pieces of it with the daedric quests in skyrim um and in oblivion but like what what normally feels like a sort of take on lord of the rings is like 
completely unhinged once you open the wiki. Yeah. And I would love to see a game that is like, we're just going to explore a corner of this mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, that'd be really interesting, but yeah. I digress. No, I was thinking, I was funny you bring up Lord of the Rings because I've, I've been a listening to the audiobook. Uh, recently, Andy Circus did the audiobooks for Lord of the Rings. Which oh, that's so fun. Is like unreal. And I, I've been listening to that uh, for just a quick aside. The amazing thing about that audiobook is that he is acting for 20 straight hours. Like it's not just I've listened to a lot of audiobooks and usually in audiobooks, it's just like, here's somebody putting their best storyteller voice on and reading the book. Andy Serkis is doing voices for everybody and is acting for the entire length of the Fellowship of the Ring, which yeah. is wild. Um, but anyway, I have never read the Lord of the Rings books. I've tried many times. My dad is a huge fan, so I've always wanted to like read them for him, but have never been able to really like persevere they're through it. They're hard. Yeah, they're they're great for establishing that like foundation and mythology but if you already know that it's not as fascinating to like stop the action to talk about different kinds of hobbit feet it's like uh right can we can we get back to the scene you yes. know yeah so that's weirdly where the audiobook is helping me a lot is because now i do find that so fascinating because andy circus is such a fascinating narrator that <laughs> yeah. hearing him talk about the the shire and hobbit lore for literally almost two hours, I was like, man, what if that bad Fellowship of the Ring game I played on the PS2 was just <laughs> like Stardew Valley, but in the Shire? <laughs> I just I, I've been thinking so much about like how you can adapt IP in like a really fun and interesting way. And I was like, doesn't it feel like The Hobbit? Or, sorry, that, that, that The Shire just would make for like a great game for just a hangout space, like just yeah. a place to chill out, even if it was like a, a Maple Story, like kind of pseudo MMO thing. I feel like we might have talked about this because I definitely brought that cursed PS2 Lord of the Rings game to the show before. What you you bringing it up was a jump scare for me just now, which is why I had my hand <laughs> in my my head in my hands. But yeah, I mean, it's again, it's like what what is sort of an unexplored experience? And I think for Lord of the Rings, like my friends who are like I, I like Lord of the Rings a lot, but my friends who are like diehards who have it memorized, who like watch the extended trilogy every year, if not more often. Yeah, I feel like a big appeal there is just being there yeah like having the movies on for as long as possible to feel like you are in this world and i think a game that is just sort of like actually doing that like giving you like we're just gonna be in the shire for a bit that would be so much fun i would love that yeah stardew valley but in the shire someone make it that'd be a great game yeah would love it i think i think the the big takeaway here for me is just there was a whole era of what a like movie tie-in game was supposed to be for a long time. Yeah. And I think that we're now starting to see developers break out of that and realize not everything needs to be like this super huge triple A experience or even a double A experience. Right. You like, also can't top the third age. So like why even it's bother? hard to top the third age Barathor <laughs> and not Gimli. Um, but that having been said, I mean, even with Lord of the Rings, we have Lord of the Rings Gollum coming out this year, which like, you know, is, is, a game that a lot of people are raising their eyebrows at, but at least is a more interesting thing than like, we're just going to do the book again, you know, like sure. It's a different angle at least to scale it back and say like, "Eh, let's look at a different piece of the lore because there's so much available to us. Like, let's try something different at least and see how that works. I think is who knows how that game is going to be when it comes out, but at least it's an interesting choice again, like Tron identity is where it's like, it's not the most obvious thing, but it's a, it's a cool idea at least. I just, I just envisioning Gollum holding a fish and seeing the renegade icon pop up. <laughs> the fish will remember that. Yeah, yeah the fish will remember <laughs> But I know what you mean. It's like, I think, um, uh, I mean, and also for so, for so long, 
movie games were like just sort of cash grabs, right? Like so yeah. many of them were just like, here's like a standard game kind of with the IP stamped over it. Mm-hmm. But then you had great exceptions to that, like the Spider-Man PS2 game. Um, yeah. And uh, I even liked some of the like just reskins. Like there was a, a Batman game for the Super Nintendo that was just Streets of Rage, but as Batman mm. fighting clowns. And like that ruled. Yeah, that was the Tim Burton era. Yeah. Yeah, that was Batman Returns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a fan favorite in the Hilger household yeah. for a long time. I also had um the Schumacher one. I forget what it was. Batman Forever, I think, was the one with uh Tommy Lee Jones as Two Face. Yeah, and Jim, Jim Carrey as the Riddler. Riddler. Yeah, yeah, I had that game too. And uh And Val Kilmer as Batman. And Val Kilmer as Batman, yeah, which I think I think I played that on the Genesis and thought it was fine. <laughs> but th- I remember that being really that game being really interesting specifically because they essentially made sprites out of photographs of the actors in their costumes. And of course, again, it's a Sega Genesis, so it's like a 16 bit console. So they or 32. I don't remember. But anyway, they just like shrunk those PNGs down as small as they could be. So it's like, yeah, you had the appeal and, and it said like on the box, like using the real actors like cinematic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, but it, just like a mess of pixels. Yeah, it was like a super compressed Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman saying like saved by kitty litter when she falls <laughs> into the sand. On that note, want to take a break and move on to our next section? Yeah, let's do it. Brendan. Hello. While I was looking in the Genesis catalog, I also wanted to revisit the N64. I check those so infrequently that whenever I go back, there's like eight new games added to it. Yeah, it's like you have a new game available and it's like 15. Yeah. (laughs) I have to say the N64 catalog got got a pretty good batch recently mm. leading up to the golden eye which was heavily marketed but like you got wave race in there pokemon stadium pokemon stadium's edition to me is is my main piece of evidence that the game boy collection will eventually get pokemon red and mm. blue because the whole <laughs> and this would also be nintendo to not do this but the whole point of pokemon stadium was that you could take your team from your red and blue game and yeah. play them in 3D Right. Um, there are many games you can also rent teams uh, if you want to have the worst possible move set for a tentacruel. <laughs> uh, but the main appeal was like I can see my team in, in fully realized 3D. Yeah. And without that, I'm wondering why it's there. But we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. All yeah. Just very weird to do it in this order, though. If that's the plan. Yeah, right. <laughs> also, you know, because we also have the Pokemon trading card game, so they're like dancing around it. It may very well be that that's just what they can put on there. It's like we got the B team. Yeah, right. Nintendo has uh, a majority stake in Creatures Inc., the Pokemon company, right? But the majority stake does not make a one hundred percent stake. They they don't call yeah. all the shots in that way. I guess. I do wonder if like for Pokemon, they would rather have that be like on the store itself. Like this is like a collection you can buy or something. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, at this point, who knows? But I digress. One of the games in the N64 catalog is a game called Sin and Punishment. This is developed by Treasure, who make your favorite uh, Gunstar superheroes. Hell yeah. And also Dreamcast Connection, Ikaruga, Ikaruga as well. Right, yeah. So they make a lot of like arcade shoot 'em ups. And Sin and Punishment, I think the last time, it was one of the last games for the N64, but it didn't get released in the West until the Wii. It was on like the virtual arcade mm. for the Wii. But even before then, like a lot of people managed to play it in a variety of ways and it sort of was like a bubbling cult classic up until it's like eventual actual release on the wii and i think there was also a sequel for the wii sin and punishment I, I forgot the subtitle but there was another game in this line star successor i'm looking at it right now star successor that might have was it the wii or the wii u that was that's on? the wii 
the Wii, yeah. which I, I really want to play. But anyway, I, I've heard great things about this game. I had no idea what it even was uh, and was like, you know what? Now's the time. I feel like in my prep for Dreamcast, I'm open to all things this completely bizarre. So I started Sin and Punishment. It is maybe the most unhinged game I've ever played in my life. You... <laughs> Regardless of whether you like it, just need to play it. I recommend Ooh. everyone play it just to see what's up. Because I, I don't think I've ever experienced a piece of media that doesn't stop. Like as soon as you think like, oh, that was like a really out there sequence. I, I imagine the next level will be kind of a break. No, it never stops. Yeah. It, even Mad Max Fury Road eventually gives you like that car crash scene where there's just like stillness in the desert. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. It doesn't stop. So the whole <laughs> premise of this game is it was made with the N64 controller in mind in that you would use, I believe, the C buttons to move your character left and right and the joystick to aim. Mm. So I will say on the on the Switch Pro controller, it takes a little bit of getting used to and it's a little it's a little weird at some sometimes in the level because there's so much going on yeah i found it to be like unresponsive in moments um but overall once you like know okay this is like jump this is move left and right and i hold zr to shoot it works pretty well um so i definitely think it's like if switch is your only way to play it which is likely it works just fine mm. um but essentially it is this very like very over the top kind of campy story sort of like evangelion monster-esque creatures called ruffians that are plaguing japan and uh you play as like this small group of rebels who are fighting both the creatures and this sort of like militarized police force that are there to control the problem but are also like exerting their force on civilians so essentially like the game opens and i would say the first level I felt like this is kind of cool, but I don't really know how well this is held up. Like, I think the novelty of 3D for a lot of these games, it's like you have to keep in mind that this is the first time 3D was being explored. And even just the idea of like, this is a rail shooter where you can move around was a selling point, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, these are, <laughs> these are concepts that are not as exciting on the back of the box, but even still, the way it's implemented, especially for a rail shooter, which like is a genre we still see today. Uh, and I'm, I'm always curious about what's going on there because I do think it's like because it's such a simplified way to experience a game, you can have a lot of fun creatively interpreting it. Like I think yeah. about Sinar Wild Hearts as a great modern example of a rail shooter mm. or at least having rail shooter elements in its framing device. And Res, I think, is sort of the, the platonic ideal, which I'm very excited for you to play in our yeah. Dreamcast prep. So... With this game, I do think the element of, of interaction still feels pretty unique. Like I don't know of a lot of rail shooters where you do have like a third person view of the player character and the ability to navigate an environment. Once you beat the first level, uh, which I would say is like a li little bit like you're getting used to the controls and, and there's not really like there aren't a lot of ideas yet. It's, it's a little bit kind of bare bones in terms of like running and shooting after the first level the game just takes off in a way and it never stops and i found the transition in my mind from like this is kind of interesting but i don't know if i'm enjoying it to like i can't stop playing this and i need to know what on <laughs> earth happens next yeah uh was really thrilling to behold yeah how, how much narrative is there here <laughs> i don't need to know <laughs> i don't even know how to quantify that I, uh -huh. there's a lot happening but it's at like breakneck speeds and mm. delivered in like very kind of campy, pretty bad voice acting. Ah. So it, it feels like sort of like a House of the Dead delivery of the plot, mm -hmm. but like the ideas of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Right. <laughs> so like 
you know, there's a point where a rat turns to a villain and goes like, is revenge what you want? And like, that's the point where my brain hit a, hit a switch and I was all in. And what's cool too is like, there are surprises within the mechanics where like, you know, from the very beginning you can run and shoot, but if enemies get close or if certain projectiles get close, you can use your sword if you like time it right. Mm Mm-hmm. So I find the most thrilling fights are where they are really clearly tasking you with thinking about where your location is and also timing when you use the sword and when you decide to shoot. Yeah. There are sequences of this game that are like gold standards for this type of arcade experience. And I can see why it has the cult following it does. There are some other points where it's like I find it can be more frustrating than enjoyable. And there are points where like I think... Well, a big part of my enjoyment is that kind of organic discovery of like what my character can do. And mm. I imagine this is also a case of like, we are playing this now in a post having read the instruction manual world. So maybe <laughs> most players would know like, oh, if I tap move twice in quick succession, I will dodge. And when I dodge, I'm like invulnerable for those frames. Mm-hmm. The other thing too is that the player character changes. So there are some moments where you have abilities you may have no idea the other character didn't have so it's just it's also a game that's like two hours long it's it's very concise even though it's like yeah very over the top it's really cool to have experienced this especially kind of thinking about it in terms of like the dreamcast often being referred to as the swan song of the arcade era and also the n64 ending with this game that is kind of showing off the full capabilities of the system. It is on one level just really cool to see it as a piece of gaming history. Mm. But I, I'm also having a great time with it. So I would recommend like if you have Nintendo Online, it's definitely worth checking out and making up your own mind about. Yeah, I really want to play it. I I loved I loved uh, Gunstar Superheroes when we yeah did, when we played that for the Game Boy Advance along with Astro Boy Omega Force, which was also a treasure game. What I just learned playing those two games was like, oh, I just need to check out like Treasure's whole catalog. Yeah, and then moving on to the ds bangayo spirits also i think is by them yeah um, and like loved that game even though we couldn't play the online functionality and like ha- half of that game essentially is missing because you can't play it online anymore but also knowing that ikaruga is on the dreamcast and the original bangayo uh is on the dreamcast as well means uh there's a lot more treasure in our future yeah i think if you're a treasure fan this feels like required reading like i think it just it, yeah, it also seems like it. like this this and ikaruga are the ones that i see like you know, on lists, Me too, right? Yeah. It's like, it's always like best N64 games, best shoot 'em up games mm-hmm. because this game was one of the few N64 games where the controller was in mind during development. <laughs> uh, I, I do wonder if it loses a bit on the switch, but I'm still having a great time with it. So would recommend it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I was going to say, Oh, if you're one of those people who has the Nintendo switch N64 controller, then maybe you should play this game. But if you have that, you've already played this game. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> yeah. there's no, there's no world in which somebody is like one of the lucky few that was able to purchase that controller and didn't play sin and punishment. You probably got that for this game, you know, <laughs> Yeah, knowing all of this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, it's also like, I think, you know, again, with game preservation, like I'm glad that this is one of the few games that made the list. Yeah. Because this this would be an easy case where this game is like not here and is impossible to find anywhere. Right. I'm glad, even though it's not an ideal format, I'm glad it is widely available to those who have Nintendo online. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. All right. I'll, I will play it. I will come back. I'll, I'll, <laughs> ma- I'll make it my homework and I'll talk about it on the show with you. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> but it, it was between this and Sonic, I feel like I've, I've, I've been fully Dreamcastified and now nice. I'm ready to experience the whole thing. Nice. Yeah. Uh, cool. You want to take one more break? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Me too. I would. I need to walk off. Send a punishment. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. Steven, we're back. Hey. And I'm back in the world of Ivalice and Final yes. Fantasy XII. I, one of the things we get asked a lot about is if you and I finish games a lot and if we feel bad about not finishing games. And I think you and I kind of have the same approach, which is, you know, your experience with a game kind of naturally comes to an end eventually, right? Like, yeah, you don't. I, I feel like you and I don't feel the need to finish everything, especially for the show. I mean, we're playing so much stuff every week. Yeah, it's like it depends on on the experience. I think for bonuses, I usually try more often than not to finish them. But yeah. even then, it's case by case. And I think what helps with the bonuses is like for regular episodes, we come to that episode with whatever we played of that game. Right. So I try to specify like if this is a first impression or, if, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I, I think what I want to avoid is this implied thing that if we don't bring a game back, we didn't like it after the fact that is not true it just means we wanted to bring up something else yeah right <laughs> but i do think if we bring up a game again that means we are really enjoying it and have more to say there are plenty of games that i have kept playing like trails in the sky is one that i have been playing long term for a while but i don't really have a lot more to say about it yet so i haven't brought it up mm. stuff like that um but yeah anyway you were you were saying I just i'm excited i'm that. excited for when that game comes up again though yeah i mean it will probably be when I finish it, I imagine. And when I start, you know, the second chapter, because that seems to be like when shit gets real is the, is yeah. the second game. Yeah. From what I've seen. But anyway, wild to think that there's like a full like 40 hour RPG that is just the prelude for a that's second 40 hour yeah. RPG. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of what we were saying where it's like, that's something that I think is really great and kind of why I'm taking my time with trails. Maybe oops, here it is again. Uh, why I've been taking my time <laughs> with trails in the sky is because it is a RPG that is about just being like a small part of the world. Like mm -hmm. you are like a legendary bracers child, but you know, you are also uh, just sort of making a name for yourself in the world as a young new bracer right. and the problems you're you're facing are very much like small town problems that slowly escalate mm -hmm. right uh, yeah when, when they think that you can handle bigger things then they'll give you bigger things to handle exactly. but it's not, <laughs> yeah it's, it's not like you've become the chosen one and you need to handle the biggest thing it's just like yeah, yeah you're working your way up like a, a little mini towns organization i also love i think estelle is slowly becoming one of my favorite rpg protagonists she's mm. incredible yeah yeah really good but I digress. You were saying Final Fantasy 12. Yeah. I So all of that said about about finishing games, I feel like frequently I don't feel any guilt about not finishing games. Like, I, again, I, I think, you know, you play as much as you can and have your time with it and move on. And I've felt that way specifically about a lot of Final Fantasy games that I've tried in particular. Like, I, I think there's always the open door for like, maybe we'll do a bonus about some of these someday. I think you and I have talked on and off about maybe doing a bonus for nine one day, which is another one that I kind of feel like I, I'd like to see through at some point. It feels like kind of it feels like one that makes sense to maybe talk about kind of more long term or like six. Yeah. Or six. Six is another big one. Yeah. There are some that I actually think you will have a better time if you don't finish. And there are some that I think <laughs> like for me, one of the big appeals for my favorite Final Fantasies is restarting them like four, for example, mm. I love restarting. Tell me tell me more about this. This is this is actually very interesting because this I think maybe directly feeds into what I'm about to talk about. I think. A lot of Final Fantasies have a bad habit of jumping the shark in the final act. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But a lot of times it feels like, especially in the earlier games, um, like I think in six, for example, 
the plot boils up to a deserved epic finale. And I would say seven as well. But I think a lot of the other games are chasing that high and they end up sort of feeling like arbitrary that you're fighting God at the end. Yeah. Four, though, I just think the strength of four to me is how personal it is. I think seeing the introduction of this kingdom and the initial questioning of orders and like what these characters role in society is and like how they can challenge the powers that be to to sort of defy the expectation of their role. That to me is a really interesting way to comment too on like the job and class system of Final Fantasy. Mm. You know, the sort of mechanics yeah. and story intertwining there. I just think four has a really great introduction and is also one of the better paced Final Fantasies where like the the beats of the early journey just don't waste your time. And it's really fun to revisit them, especially with like the sight of the whole game and knowing where the story eventually goes. Yeah, that's interesting. So that said, uh, Final Fantasy 12 is a game we brought up uh, or I brought to the show about three years ago at this point. It's yeah, been, it was it was the first one that clicked for you, right? It was the first Final Fantasy that you felt like pretty was, much. Yeah with, yeah, with the um with the exception of seven remake specifically which yeah. i think was also that year right that was like a couple months earlier that year oh god that was three when he said three years ago i assumed it was at the beginning of the show not 2020 <laughs> good lord yeah. Anyway. yeah it was 2020 um so yeah i i remember i think we were like hot off the heels of playing final fantasy 7 remake it was the first final fantasy that i had ever finished and i thought to myself like i i need more of this but i don't know where to get it from because you know once you finish final fantasy 7 uh there are i guess what seven there are seven more final fantasies that i could go check out at that point <laughs> and that's only counting mainline entries right yeah so i had bounced around between a bunch of them you've recommended some to me here and there nine was one that you had recommended to me really early on before i'd even played any of them you were like yeah. i think nine is maybe the one for you which um i think it still might be one of the ones for me down the line again uh but there was something about 12 that always really stuck out to me as just like really fascinating and, and bizarre like for a franchise that is known for literally reinventing itself every single time they make a new game 12 somehow is one of the weirder ones even compared to the mmos because it is a single player mmo yeah um right it, it's it's a single player mmo it ditches the turn-based combat almost entirely in favor of this pseudo real-time combat system that again feels like an MMO, but a completely different spin on it in which you are programming what your main character and the other characters in your party are doing, or you can turn that stuff off and like choose actions from a list at any moment. Yeah. The game, the game kind of encourages you to use gambits though, which is the programming you mentioned. I actually really yeah. love that system. I kind of wish more games took advantage of that because it is a really clever way to be like, yes, why don't you do the programming for this battle sequence? Yeah. You know, which I think, yeah, I think it's really interesting and I really like it. And I kind I also wish that it showed up in more things. It seems really interesting. You um, know what other game has a similar system? And this is my slight nudge to you to check out more of it is a uh, dragon age origins. They have like a similar, uh, not quite as in depth, but there is like a auto battler setup where it's like, if health is less than this, use this move. Or like mm. if enemy is blank, use this attack. Oh yeah. Um, which can be really helpful when you have like a full team at your disposal. Right. Yeah. And I, I do think that's one of the ways that they kind of allow Final Fantasy 12 to feel action packed in real time while also allowing you to control multiple party members at once. You know, I think it's, it's a hard problem to solve to say we don't want this to be turn based, but also we don't want it to be like fully real time combat. And and 
the gambit system as kind of a halfway point between those two things, I think is really fascinating. Um, specifically the idea that you can like go into a store that sells gambits, um, and like buy new pieces of programming tools (laughs) that you can use. So like, okay, uh, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy the self gambit, which means like, (laughs) okay. Uh, you know, if, if self is less than 50% health, then use potion on self, you know, things like that. The gambit system is fascinating, but anyway, all of this said, I, I think as the years have gone on since bringing up Final Fantasy 12 for the first time, uh, the Zodiac Age, which is like the kind of re-released enhanced edition that exists on Nintendo Switch and pretty much everywhere else. I just I feel like I need to finish it. Like Final Fantasy 12 feels like a game that I really do need to see all the way through because I mean, there are so many reasons, but I, I just think it is this like standout, fascinating, interesting idea for what a Final Fantasy game can be, which again is kind of remarkable compared to what all of the other ones are because they're all trying to be standouts in their own way. Final Fantasy 12 still all these years later, I think feels like something wholly different and unique than what everything else that we've ever gotten. And they've never really gone back to what's going on here outside of it taking place in Ivalice as like the... yeah the the world the closest feel is probably 14 and even then that's a totally different beast with it right, being that's like a an actual full ass mmo, MMO. Yeah. <laughs> right but i really want to see it through and i think a piece of it is that narrative that you're talking about this idea that the game starts out really really as a personal story that gets wrapped up in this kind of larger conflict um and i feel like that has almost echoes of what seven is doing in a completely different way where seven is like trying to be this kind of like grimy cyberpunk eco-terrorism allegory and in some cases it's just literally that 12 i feel like is kind of going after a similar thing where you know you're you're just this kid who is growing up on the streets of a country that just happens to be in between two countries that are at war and of course you know you, you get wrapped up in it it's not too dissimilar from what we were talking about last week with valkyria chronicles where like what does it mean to be like a centrist in a world where everyone is at combat and you're stuck in the middle of it like you can't just sit idly by you need to, you need to act in some way shape or form to make the world a better place and to stop the war from happening that does seem like a good setup for a game that ends with you fighting god <laughs> I <think. laughs> like I, I feel like at the at the end of the day it's like okay when you as a kid that grew up on the streets make your way through and eventually solve whatever this war crisis is the next step for you is to kill god and say that you're the master of that world (laughs) in some ways um and i don't know if i don't know if 12 actually goes there but like that feels like one of the the more believable ramps into that usual finale for final fantasy than than i think we've seen in some of these other games i think because it has also like even though it's an ensemble piece it has the steps of a hero's journey more than the other ones do where like yeah vaughn and pinello are just two random kids that get swept up in this whole thing what's interesting is that originally ff12's production like with almost every final fantasy game is wild to learn more about and the original protagonist was bosh Right. who is the sort of classic heroic warrior that is wrongfully imprisoned uh, and mm-hmm. in some ways is the more traditional Final Fantasy protagonist. And the request to add Vaughn, I'm not sure exactly where that originated from, but I actually do think it 
works better. Mm. One of 12's refreshing takes on the series is that there is no, in a series that is beholden in some ways to there being a chosen one and there being a big bad, 12 purposely steps away from both of those things where they're like, there really isn't a main character. There's this ensemble of like, here are these two seemingly normal kids swept up in this big thing. There are characters like Ash and Bosch who like are more directly connected to the plot. And then you have Balthier who thinks he's the lead, which is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and his partner in crime, Fran, and they're incredible. Yeah. It's like you could tell this came out in the era of Pirates of the Caribbean because they want so badly Balthier to be like the Jack Sparrow. Um, but he's like yes. ac- actually nails it, uh, which is incredible. <laughs> um, like the James yeah. Bond. He's like simultaneously James Bond, Han Solo and Jack Sparrow. Yeah. And it, it doesn't feel cringy. Yeah. I think we talked if I if I recall correctly a couple of years ago when, when I first brought this game to the show, we talked a little bit about how it came out around the same time that Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings were coming out and it was in development while the prequel trilogy of Star Wars was coming out. Right. And feels so much like a mashup of oh, yeah. all of those influences at the same oh, yeah. time, which is really fun. And and I feel like Balthier is like the perfect encapsulation of that by being Han Solo and Jack Sparrow <laughs> at the same time, but like also has hints of Obi-Wan in there in the way that he teaches you a lot of like how to be a thief in the same way that Obi-Wan is teaching Luke how to be a Jedi. Um, it's real. It's fascinating. It's fascinating when you, when you know, when you think about the context of the era that this game was developed in you can feel those influences coming through yeah uh, in the same i don't know it I, I don't know why this all links to dreamcast for me but it, it but it feels a lot like i i think what we'll be experiencing when playing dreamcast stuff yeah i also i mean ff12 2 is one of the last ps2 games so like right. like all games that kind of come at the end of the era you can tell they really know how to use that system to its advantage and like yeah so i was 16 when 12 came out um i remember because that christmas i got twilight princess and ff12 and never left my house um for like (laughs) weeks and weeks but i remember liking 12 enough it wasn't one of my favorites like i think i was definitely more like 10 was a big deal for me as a kid Mm. um almost almost on the same level as 7 11 was the mmo so 12 was like for a lot of people it had been six years since 10 came out so like yeah there was a lot of hype around 12 and it being one of the larger departures from the norm, I think kind of led to, it did well, but I think amongst fans, it was a little bit more mixed. And Mm. I think this is one of the final fantasies that time has been really kind to. So I think when you, when you talk to people now, 12 is amongst, I think the most well-received. And I think it's because like in all, you know, long series, the entries that have the confidence to sort of take bigger risks and do things more unique to themselves end up standing the test of time better than ones that sort of adhere to a formula. And that's the best and worst thing about Final Fantasy is that every entry since seven is, is just going for something and we'll see how it, how it works out. (laughs) Totally. I I think to, to loop all of this together, the Ouroboros of the segment is that I loaded up my old save file from when I first brought it to the show. I was like eight hours in and I was in this kind of not a cutscene, but kind of in this like big set piece battle uh, where I'm on a ship and I'm trying to escape the ship with my party. And I completely forgot how to play the game. And I died like two or three times. And I was like (laughs) in the gambit menu, like trying to figure out the gambits. And I was like, I don't don't know. I, I don't know if I can figure this out really. And I was like, eight hours isn't that much time really <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Should I just restart? Yeah. And yeah it's funny. So, I had a similar thing with Valkyria Chronicles because you inspired me to go back and I'm like, I don't remember a thing. 
and <laughs> they don't have any controls in the menu. The only way to look at the controls is to download the actual manual from the title page. Uh, I don't remember like what the tactics are, what I should be doing. Yeah. Got destroyed. I might just start over as well. <laughs> yeah. So that's what that's what I did with Final Fantasy yeah. 12. I started from scratch and I remembered some things here and there about how the game opened. Um, you know, it hasn't been that long, really. So like I remembered the beats of the story. I was like, OK, cool. So I have to, you know, go through this first initial battle, learn how the combat works, et cetera, et cetera. Then you take control of Vaughn. You have to go out into the desert and get a sunstone and bring it into the palace and steal some stuff from the palace, blah, 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 blah. Like I remembered all of that stuff. But the thing that I've been experiencing, I'm like maybe three hours in now and I am way further back in the game than I probably was the first time I played through because I'm just hanging out in Rabinastra, which is the the first city that you start in. Yeah, it's so cool. It's the, such a the, cool setting. Yeah, the feeling, the the idea of the single player MMO, I think, is really permeating with me this time, even more so than did the first. I, I remember liking it the first time I was playing it, but on this playthrough, I'm like really talking to everybody. Like the idea that there is this entire MMO world filled with NPCs walking around because there aren't other people walking around, like actual real human players walking around this world to interact with. So they instead fill everything in Rabinastra with NPCs that all have dialogue. So just like bopping around to the different stores, ones that like you don't even have really the capacity or the facility to actually buy anything from or like frequent for any reason. Like there's a Gambit store that you can't really even go to until after you've left in the opening few hours and then come back later if you have a teleport stone. Again, a very MMO thing. But, you know, there are all these stores that you can't even like buy stuff from that just exists to fill out the world and make it more interesting in the first couple hours. That opening city is so dense and so well realized and so interesting that I just have been like bopping around there more than anything else. And it's now three hours in that I'm like, I guess I should probably play the game, huh? I should probably like engage with the story. And that's how I know that this game really has a hold on me, I think, more than yeah. anything else. Like the the feeling that I, I felt deep down, you know, again, when I was like packing for the trip, I told myself I'm just gonna bring my Switch. I'm not gonna bring anything else game because we're also playing Metroid Prime for our bonus this month. So I was like, I, I need to just bring my Switch so I can focus on Metroid Prime, but I'm going to need to download some other stuff to play to talk about on this episode, knowing that Tron Identity was going to be one of the games. I was like, what is the other thing that I'm playing this week? I don't know what it was about Final Fantasy 12 that was like, I just really feel like I have to go back to that game. I'm so glad I did. I, I think we talked about this at the end, I think, of last year's game of the year episode or maybe the episode after that but a little bit of my philosophy for 2023 as a year of into the aether for me and like what i've learned from doing the past couple of years is last year i just started a lot of games and didn't finish them and again that's not a bad thing inherently but there are some games that i wish i had seen more of before i really like put them down forever so this game i mean so this year i'm trying to play fewer games and finish more of them is kind yeah. of a little bit a little bit of my my headspace this year or at least see more of them to like feel like i have a complete understanding instead of just like kind of getting excited by the new shiny thing that's dropping and final fantasy 12 is very much in that wheelhouse of like i really oh, yeah. feel like i need to see a lot more of this game than just the first eight hours of it like i think there's enough interesting stuff going on here that i i want it to be like fused with my dna like i think i'm just going to become the final fantasy 12 guy eventually yes. and and i just need to like allow that evolution that metamorphosis to happen you know what i mean yeah oh my work here is done i mean i guess the show's <laughs> over yeah i mean i one of my favorite things about you know seeing a friend or or anyone get into final fantasy is like seeing which entries they click with the most mm. and 
I, I think the Ivelisse quadrant of Final Fantasy is is really special because it also shows how many different takes you can have on the same place. Mm. Like, because I think something like Vagrant Story, which I feel like is definitely one we both need to play at this point, especially yeah. if, if 12 is your one, I feel like that's like the the Empire Strikes Back of Ivelisse. Um, yeah, I, t- I tweeted that I was playing this game again and a bunch of people replied saying, like, why haven't you played Vagrant Story? <laughs> <laughs> um, but Vagrant Story and FF Tactics feel like the much darker takes on Ivelisse. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Final Fantasy Tactics Advance games that are like, what if Ivelisse was a Saturday morning cartoon? Um, (laughs) and 12 is like right in the middle, which I actually kind of prefer. I think it's nice to have sort of the whimsy of the more lighthearted entries, but like, cause there are some really big gut punches the way this game opens is pretty dark. Yes. But I, I hear you on one of the downsides of doing this show, which there are very few is even without having to be beholden to anything, we can play whatever we want. There is a little bit of of pressure to bring something new to the show. Mm. Um, so I think having it be like, okay, we're going to have that, like that window of time for checking out something new we're gonna have that window of time for playing whatever the bonus game is and then just being like what is the game that i am currently seeing through to the end so for me that's trails and it's i think it's nice to have sort of a dedicated time for that for us yeah i think so too especially you know considering we're about to get into the dreamcast in a really big way and stuff i think it'll be nice to just have my switch next to my bed as like the final fantasy 12 machine, you know, <laughs> just like the thing I play before I go to sleep. Yeah. But everything else is like, okay, I'm just replaying resident evil four remake for the fourth time and also playing the dreamcast whenever I'm sitting at my TV. I feel like final fantasy two is at a really interesting time right now because I feel like the, <laughs> it's kind of weird to think about like in a post final fantasy seven remake and FF 14 becoming a global hit worlds that the mainline series is kind of due for a comeback after 15 like mm. 15 was I think well received and sold well, but you know, is in comparison to the other games, clearly a more disjointed experience, which mm. we went into full detail with when you actually put all the pieces together. Yeah. <laughs> like I've watched the movie, watched the anime. I've, I've followed the trail of breadcrumbs to knock this apartment, <laughs> but, uh, I watched the, the, uh, PlayStation event for FF 16 and it is talking about maximalism. It is like, they really just decided to do everything in that game. Like it has, you know, yeah. I, I think the one of the designers of Devil May Cry, if not the creator, is on board in some capacity. So like, yeah, the the, the uh, combat designer for this game, combat designer. Some of those set pieces are like wild. There's like Panzer Dragoon moments happening. There's like Street Fighter <laughs> moments happening. There's also a hub world where you get to like hang out with Moogles. Uh, there's also like a FF15 open world. Uh, you play as one guy the whole time with with party mates that join, but they're AI controlled, which is interesting to me i think my favorite final fantasy games are ensemble driven so it's like kind of a bummer to see that this is just like one person the whole time it's one it's one person that you're playing as i'm sure you're going to like have conversations with and interact with the party oh, yeah, you have party mates that join they're just ai controlled yeah I, I still think you'll get that sense of ensemble that you're looking for i just i just don't think you'll be able to let them use cure what I, right what i'm what i'm getting to is that while it's not the direction i would have hoped to see i'm curious to see what it looks like when that is the committed vision for the for the project. absolutely yeah so it's like after watching that event i honestly don't know what i'm in for still with ff16 <laughs> but i'm really excited to see like what what is this path for the series and are they going to commit to every mainline entry being something new or is this the path for the mainline series and they're going to do other stuff alongside it like ff14 and the ff7 remake 
series at this point. So I'm just curious to see what's going to happen. And it's cool to have like all of the old games readily available and just see what they each did uniquely. Because I think that's the strength of the series to me is the fact that they're all kind of the beginning of their own series. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of in some ways it's it's like a blessing and a curse of Square of course, Enix yeah. and Final Fantasy, right? Is that like every game I do think they come out from the perspective of this could be like a multimedia enterprise on its own because sure. they had it happen with Final Fantasy VII. And of course they would want that to happen again in some way, shape or form, right? Like, of course, they would want to be able to say Final Fantasy XV was a global success and everyone wants like the the Noctis spin or the Prompto spinoff, right? Dirge of Prompto. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, but it just hasn't happened for them really yet. Um, I, I think the closest they got was Final Fantasy 13, right? And that was kind of like a they announced it beforehand and they kind of needed to follow through thing more than it was anything else in some ways, right? Like Final Fantasy 13 was presented and announced as this like kind of big, uh, expansive collection of games and not just the one thing, right? Even Final Fantasy 15 was one of the games they announced in the Final Fantasy 13 collective that eventually they were like, ah, this should be its own thing eventually, but... It was almost kind of the cart before the horse situation with that. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, 13 is, is kind of a rough example of that where you get all of these games that kind of need to be made. Thankfully, I think at least from what I understand from people who played them all, they seem to get better over time. Like the, the other Final Fantasy 13s are even better than the first one. But then you have the worst case scenario, which is 15, which is like the movie comes out before the game, but includes <laughs> bits that you need to know from the game to understand the movie completely. And also the game has bits that you need to have watched the movie to understand along with the anime, along with the visual novel, along with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I am just kind of happy more than any. I didn't watch the state of play, but I'm just happy more than anything that they're like, it's just a video game. Like, it's just yeah. going to be Final Fantasy 16. You just have to play this video game to understand what happens in the video game. And, and you know, maybe they'll have a Final Fantasy 16 2 that comes out in seven years. But at <laughs> least we'll just have this thing first. Yeah. And we'll get to judge it on its own intention and figure out, hey, do we want spinoffs of this? Do we want to see more out of this world? Um, is it Ivalice again? It's, I don't think it is in name, but it, it feels like a vagrant story, Ivalice. Yeah. Like it, it, is, it is darker in tone. It almost yeah. feels like Stranger Paradise was a trial run for this in retrospect because it has like interesting uh clive i think his name is is not full on shadow the hedgehog like jack was um (laughs) which i almost kind of miss now that we don't have it but uh stranger paradise from what i i didn't play it but from what i read and saw it was very much like a character action game meets dark souls uh run at final fantasy yeah and this seems to be kind of similar to that where it's like Mm. the moves are very much over the top and i really do think after Avent children every final fantasy has just been chasing that high since and this game feels like we can now top Avent children in just ridiculousness (laughs) uh which you know hey i'm here for it so i'm i'm excited to see how it is one thing that stood out to me which is like maybe one of the objectively less exciting things to notice about that state of play was that the chocobo riding looks great like they like (laughs) they like drifted on the chocobo and its wings kind of fluttered and then it glided down a cliff i'm like they've never really given chocobo riding like mechanical thought it's always just sort of been like a key more than anything it was like yeah oh now you can like go over the mountain but actually being able to enjoy riding a chocobo 
it looks great. I'm very yeah. excited for that, at least. That was one of the most tonally disparate moments of Final Fantasy 15 in a game that has so many tonally disparate moments. Yeah. But there's, <laughs> there's a there's a bit where uh, the car gets stolen and the world is like starting to end and you need to rent Chocobos to make it from point A to point B, like to get to where your car was when it was stolen. And the world has like just these gloomy gray dark storm clouds overhead and things are really dire it's like oh my god i think the enemy might win in this case and unfortunately every time you get on a chocobo in final fantasy 15 it plays the music it plays the chocobo (laughs) song so it's supposed to be this like kind of really dark tense bit of the game that goes on for like 30 minutes because you need to cross the entire world on a chocobo um, and and of course that music is playing and it's going like while Noctis is like I don't know if we're gonna make it through this guys. <laughs> it is kind of funny how Chocobos have become the connective tissue. Like everything else is different, but there yeah. will be Chocobos and maybe Moogles. Yeah. And uh, what's funny is that have you seen Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind? Mm-hmm. That was the original Chocobo. Sakaguchi has has cited Nausicaa's inspiration for Final Fantasy and basically one to one with the like birds they ride in that movie and that manga. That makes sense. Fun fact. Yeah. Thank you, Miyazaki. All of that said, I'm going to be playing a lot more Final Fantasy 12, I think. Yeah, I I really love it and expect to hear more about it one day, maybe when I'm at the end. It's one that I'd like to finish eventually. That might be a fun bonus potentially once Mm. you're finished. There there are a few Final Fantasies that I think would make good bonuses and and that is one of them. We can maybe do like an evilly special and check out the other ones too. That'd be fun. I, th- yeah. I think <laughs> I think one of the things about Final Fantasy twelve that I is really pulling me into wanting to finish it is the Gambit system and just seeing how it evolves over time. Because I do remember yeah. in my first attempt at playing it, getting to the point where it's like I could actually be pretty hands off with a lot of combat until like a boss shows up and then you really need to think about it. Because as with all good boss fights, it kind of becomes puzzle solving mechanics. And one of the smart things about the Gambit system is they give you a bunch of sets of Gambits that you can switch between. So like you can kind of set it up so like okay usually Vaughn is doing this but in the event that there are enemies that are weak to fire I'm going to switch my entire gambit setup to this setup uh, so you can like save a bunch of like sets in some ways as if it's like a card game I'm I'm interested to get back to that point yeah and like see it through from there yeah I remember I just remembered that when I played originally in high school I hit a wall where I just like could not beat one of the bosses mm-hmm. and the boss is literally a wall it was like this demon kind of like in uh ff7 oh, i think i remember you mentioning this in the last episode yeah that, it, that we it was like this. a yes. wall demon that i could not beat uh <laughs> and apparently is like infamously one of the harder fights but i'm sure a lot of times when i go back to games where i hit a wall when i was a teenager or a kid i just now as an adult know what to do <laughs> mm. so i'm hopeful that that will happen with 12 but it is like because so much of the game's success is tied to gambits and like careful planning you do sometimes have to lose often to figure out a new strategy which is fun like once you if you have that mindset failure isn't as frustrating as it could be yeah Um, yeah the first boss fight in this game uh is in the sewers where it plays john williams score from the phantom menace uh but anyway (laughs) uh in the sewer you essentially fight a bunch of slimes and the slimes have the ability to blind your uh party members and I, I walked right into it kind of forgetting that that was the case with this boss fight and then immediately hopped into the menu and was like, I need to restructure my entire gambit to figure out like how to use the eye drops on all my characters in case that happens to them. Because if, if they get blinded, then they, you know, all their attacks whiff and even their cures don't hit uh, if, if they're trying to cure your allies. So pretty important. But 
it's in those moments where I think the gambit system gets the most exciting when it's like you're presented with the thing that you didn't even think you needed to account for um, and need to like restructure your entire system. And it's very it's nice that that's your tutorialization for it, because at that point, you're early enough in the game where everyone usually has one or two gambit slots, maybe a third one if you've been like grinding a bit like I have. Um, so like everyone has three right now, which is a, very easy to manage. It was very easy to like go down to the third kind of almost like redundant attack gambit that I had set up and be like, just change that to use eye drops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's also fun is have you messed around with the, uh, like the beast hunting guild? Mm. There's like a yeah. monster hunter game within FF 12. That is so much fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to get through the sewers again so I can re-engage with that side of it. Uh, cause I, I did the, the tutorial one that they hit you with right at the top. And then I did a second one when you're still, you still only have Vaughn as the only character in your party. Um, but now that I have, you know, kind of a squad, I have, I have both here and Fran with me. I'm excited to, do more of that i'm pretty sure that at least in the original game they might have fixed this or or adjusted it at least in zodiac age but one of the final hunts i believe I'm not, maybe it's a different side quest but there is a boss in final fantasy 12 that takes like actually eight hours to beat um <laughs> and and i think i think it's one of the final hunts but i was uh, gonna say i'm, I'm on how long yeah. to beat.com right now looking at how long it takes to be final fantasy 12 and uh it says that the like normal average for people which is a lot already is 92 and a half hours to beat the game that's yeah. like a very long video game completionist is 160 hours <laughs> and, and i was wondering <laughs> how much stuff is in this game that it's almost double the average uh because yeah. because just beating the game normally story only is like 60 hours and that's uh, like final fantasy tends to be i mean it depends on the entry but like pre-10 they're all like 20 to 30 hours for the yeah. most part yeah but I think apparently the from what I know, the development of 12, they were all playing 11 at the time, which kind of partially influenced the MMO approach. And I think yeah. making a single player MMO as evidenced by the Xenoblade Chronicles series is just going to make the game longer because there's so much you can do. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I've yeah. been thinking a lot about about those games uh, in relation to this one and just thinking like I, I wish that more people did that because I think I, I often have the feeling that I want to be playing an MMO, but I don't like the like the grind and requirement of always being online that that yeah that that requires i guess yeah. um it, it always kind of bums me out a little bit like i think that's one of the things that is frequently holding me back from actually getting into mmos i, I frequently said on the show early on in the show i really wanted to get into a jrpg and i eventually obviously have gotten into a lot of them but the other white whale for me has always been like, I want to get into an MMO that I really like. And Final Fantasy 14 seemed like the closest I was probably going to get to that or like maybe even Elder Scrolls Online. But still the idea that like I can only play it when I'm at home sitting on my TV is always going to be a barrier for me. Somebody who likes to play in bed or play handheld stuff. And the idea that there is this kind of like nascent genre with only a few entries in it of taking everything that's fun about an MMO and building it into a single player game, I think is like an unmined gold mine for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause I think both Xenoblade Chronicles and FF 12 nail, at least for me, what I liked or remember liking about a game like world of Warcraft, where it's like the sense of place, right? Yes. Like returning to the setting that feels very alive and that there's stuff to do in, in many ways it shares a lot in common with like what we expect and want from open world games but there mm -hmm. is a distinction there there is like a feeling of community and of connection that not a lot of open world games think about or value as much 
Right. Um, I, I think it goes a little overboard with the like, I, I happen to like these herbs. And if you give them to me, our relationship will change. <laughs> right. But I, I do think it's it, it shows the thought and development that that team actually thought about who are all these characters in this town? Like mm-hmm. they all have their own distinct personalities and their own lives that are going to change along with the story. They're yeah. not just like static voice boxes. They are also inhabitants of this world. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's one of the wilder too. things about 12 for me yeah. is the early on in the game. One of the first things that happens is as you're playing as Vaughn, kind of making your way around town, everyone is preparing for the emperor's son to show up. Uh, and they're going to have like this kind of big unveiling and the emperor's son is going to give this big uh, speech. Uh, he, he's called the consul in the, in the game. Um, and while the prep for that is happening, everyone that you talk to in Robin Astra is talking about that. Then you have to go out into like the sands, into the desert outside of the city, kind of do some like fetch questy stuff and then come back and you get stuck on your way coming back in. You have to like sneak in through uh, what's called low town and make your way back in. And as all of that's happening and you make your way back in is when the big speech happens. First of all, I don't know if he's the villain or not. I assume he is. But like one of the best villain speeches of all time. Such a good speech. That is the moment where you're like, I wish the Galactic Senate was on this level. Like this is such (laughs) they simultaneously sort of set up that this guy might be a villain, but he is so convincing. Like he manages to like quell rebellion with with a few paragraphs. Yes. And that is actually more chilling than everyone in the crowd has showed up to scream and yell and boo at him. And he just kind of gives a speech that's so eloquent and honestly so open hearted that everyone turns and kind of uh, uh, just uh, loves him by the end and they they applaud his speech. Um, Anyway, all of that stuff happens and then to my absolute amazement, everyone I talked to in the city after that cutscene played out was talking about that speech and talking about the experience of the console showing up and they had written dialogue for literally, not literally, but just about every character that's like wandering around. Everyone who's not like tending to a stall or a shop has now new dialogue, which I assume will just continue to progress throughout the course of the game. And that's so much writing. And that's the kind of thing that you can do if the world is changing because of a narrative in the way that it really can't in some MMOs. Um, yeah. and, and it in some ways makes the world feel even more alive in the absence of other players running around and that's cool i feel like i say this about every final fantasy but this has to be one of the best scores too like i think the soundtrack to 12 it's awesome it's yeah. just it, it is also so good at, at sweeping you into the sense of place like the when you said low town i immediately thought of the theme the theme yeah. of that place like it gives you both kind of like an uneasiness but also like you're kind of pumped to be there like this is yeah. a cool spot like i know like i can get into trouble here <laughs> Uh, same, I mean, you know, FF7, I think, is just like such a wild range of musical genres. But I think 12, 12 soundtrack does a really great job, like guiding the experience. Mm-hmm. And to its credit, I know we've talked some, we've thrown some shade on 13. 13 soundtrack is also one of my favorites. To be it clear. is good. Yeah, we, we talked about that when I was playing Final Fantasy 15 again. But you can play the soundtracks from the other Final Fantasy games in your car as you drive around. And I was frequently listening to the Final Fantasy 13 yeah. soundtrack. Lightning's theme and, and the battle theme are like chef's yeah, kiss really um, good yeah anyway but yeah, I'm, I'm really happy you're you're slowly becoming an ivalice fanboy and i i'm very <laughs> curious to see like i, I want to hear your thoughts as you get deeper into 12 but i'm also like very intrigued by vagrant story yeah and i want to see if that's like secretly going to be a big one for us it seems like a must yeah i've, I've heard that game is excruciatingly difficult um but <laughs> yeah. you know play with a guide whatever yeah exactly wonderful well i need to uh i'm wondering like uh 
there are also many Final Fantasies that I haven't finished. And now I'm like kind of embarrassed that I've been like the resident Final Fantasy fan and I have only played like a few of them to completion. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to outpace you eventually. Yeah, right. But yeah, I've I've finished 6, 7, 9, 4 and 10 off the top of my head. Mm. And I finished Realm Reborn in 14 if that counts. Yeah, I'm not um, going to outpace you, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> one that i started recently that i would love to get uh further into was five five caught me by surprise i really mm. really was impressed by that but anyway uh do you want to wrap up my friend i do the, the last thing i'll say about it is that i i think in within the next month is when the pixel remasters hit switch finally yeah. um, i think this week right this is that week. is that this week i think it might be wow that's exciting yeah they come out april 19th which is the day after my birthday wow that's wild is, yeah uh, I, I'm definitely going to get that for Switch. They also, <laughs> in the trailer, they're like, with better font, because they just they knew that that was like a thing. The thing that everybody was upset about. Yeah, yeah I, I am very curious to see uh, to see how, how people feel about that. I mean, I, I imagine they're excited, but um, either way, I, th I think it's also going to be really expensive again. I don't think it's going to be the hundred something dollars it was on Steam when it first launched, but um, I, I think, it's think it's at least the full price of like a triple A game. I, yeah. I might get a few of them. I'm definitely going to get six and I might get four and five as well. Yeah, that seems I mean, those are the ones to get, to be honest. Yeah. I, I, I may get the the full collection just to have because um, I, I feel like I'll probably be bouncing in and out of those games forever, as far as I can tell. And I'll always yeah. be curious about all of them. So, yeah, I want to play I, the only ones I haven't played are two and three. I played the DS remake of three, but I haven't played like the original three. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see what that's like. Also, this week, Minecraft Legends comes out on your birthday. On your uh, birthday. Thank you, Steve. And Advance Wars 1 plus 2 Reboot Camp comes out this week. I'm cautiously excited for that. I think it's going to, as long as it's the same, if it's really just like those first two games in a new aesthetic, that's perfect. But if they if they try to mess with it too much, that's where I'm worried. Mm. But uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to get my hands on those. Yeah. Anyway, that's what's coming this week on the horizon. Cool. Well, anyway, thank you so much for listening. Into the Cast.online is our website that has everything you need for the show, places to review us. You can review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you want to support the Patreon, links to it are also at Into the Cast.online. Um, anything else you're excited about on the horizon? Uh, no, just those three games that we talked about. I mean, I probably won't pick up Advance Wars, but um, Minecraft Legends is getting really, really good reviews, believe it or Interesting. not. So what is what is it exactly? I honestly have no idea, but it's going to be on Game Pass, so <laughs> no brainer. Cool. Um, I know next month, obviously, is Zelda, which like that trailer was was too much yeah, in a good way. It was a lot. Yeah. And then June is the big one. That's did FF16. you see that there's some stuff from Age of Calamity that's in the Tears of the Kingdom? Really? Age of Calamity, the game that was supposed to be the side canon that doesn't actually feed into the actual right. lore, has characters in it that showed up in the trailer <laughs> for Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> that rules. I hope it's just like a like it seems it seems like based on the marketing that it's sort of a a like everything kind of verging into one game. Yeah. Yeah, my 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 final uh 1000-foot half-court shot uh is that the game is I mean, I mentioned this already, but the Ouroboros of the of the the logo references the Ouroboros of the timeline. So this is this is the last game in the timeline, which will feed into Skyward Sword. But also that Tears of the Kingdom can be referenced as Tears of the Kingdom as if like the timeline is tearing into yeah. this game. And that's why we're seeing enemies and stuff from other. Yeah, from other Zelda games. I honestly love that. And I mean, my. I'll say it now, just in case it's true and, and I'm right ahead of time and I could be proud about that. <laughs>
my my theory based on actually nothing other than that Ganondorf is hot. <laughs> I have a feeling that there's going to be a Ganondorf, specifically Ganondorf redemption arc in this game. Not I Ganon. think that not Ganon. I think yeah. that there there may be a distinction because we keep seeing Link's arm. It reminds me a lot of um, you bring up Miyazaki, but Princess Mononoke. Yeah. With like the the like boar's hatred in Ashitaka's arm. Mm. I feel like Link is inadvertently given like the aspect of power like that is Ganon's like spirit yeah. in his arm and needs to learn how to control it and Ganondorf may end up having to team up with Link and Zelda for the sake of like the existence of the material realm of Hyrule against a greater threat. Yeah. Like not like a full redemption, but just like I, we actually need all three parts of the Triforce to exist in harmony in this one moment mm. before everything is erased. Kind of. Yeah. Thing. Also, if you think about the lore of <laughs> getting into this, if you think about the lore <laughs> of Skyward Sword, right? There's, there's this like secondary, more primal evil force that inhabits Ganon, right? Right, right. As the big bad, technically. Uh, so I, I just think that would be interesting. Because I think, as we always say, like there, there was this, I, I don't know who the artist was, but there was this beautiful mural. You can find it if you just Google like Zelda mural, basically. But it's <laughs> like, it's this really uh, long mural where on the top, there is this eclipsed by sunlight field of three little kids running that sort of imply that the three goddesses mm. um and then it's the sages from ocarina of time and then it's link zelda and ganon like all kind of wielding a weapon like in unison and then as you go further down it's like all the mortal characters and then eventually the villains and then on the very very bottom is like wolf link and this shadowy depiction of a woman holding a baby that's implied to be link well so it's it's beautiful. It's really really cool, and that image has given me that I like just seeing Zelda. This is kind of embarrassing, but just seeing Zelda and Link and Ganon like fighting in unison has always been really cool to me. Mm. Like that that aspect of like actually reconnecting the Triforce in a meaningful way um, and learning in some ways to maybe wield power with courage and wisdom and not against it. Yeah, uh, I think that would be a logical end to all of these adventures. Yeah, that's always been the the most interesting kind of untapped piece of it, right? Is like power yeah. doesn't always need to be inherently bad. Uh, right. Yeah. The only time that's ever happened is in maybe Oracle of Seasons when Din is a character and it's just like your friend. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see what happens. I could be wildly off base, but if, if, if something like that happens, I'd be very excited to see that. Yeah. But I'm also trying to not like write a story in my head that I'll be disappointed if it's not exactly that. Cause that's, I kind of expect, I expect this game to be incredible, but I do expect because it's the sequel to what is often considered the best game of all time, like, or at least the best Zelda game, there's mm. going to be like a lot specific expectations. And there's already this sort of like uh want of dungeons again. So I imagine if that doesn't happen, there's going to be a lot of disappointment there. I just feel like there's a lot of like building up what it could be in our heads in a way that wasn't really happening when the first Breath of the Wild came out. Right. You know, so I'm, I'm just curious to see what the conversations will be like for this game yeah i'm i'm very in the same way i was excited when elton ring came out for the show i'm really excited about those episodes and recording those episodes can be really fun. yeah yeah 
Well, with that, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. And we also have, I, we don't have a concrete date for that patron episode with uh, Chris Plant yet, but that should be out by the end of the month. And we also have our Metroid Prime bonus for everyone that will also be coming out at the end of the month. So two things to look forward to. Yeah. Cool. Well, have a great week, everybody. Have a great week. Enjoy the start of spring. Uh, if that's where you're, if the hemisphere is spring. If not, enjoy a nice fall. The amount of bumblebees that have bumped their heads into the window in front of me throughout the course of this recording, <laughs> I've, been, I, I've just been holding it inside. It's just like the most springtime thing ever. You play Vagrant Story yet? Um, <laughs> my name is Stephen Hilger. You can find me at Stephen Hilger. Goodbye. I'm Brenda Bigley. See ya. See ya.